is. There it is. Here we are. We're Phil. We are. I feel like we're we're vastly outnumbered in terms of IQ here right now. I I, I would concur. <laughs> I would concur graciously. So. The uh, this is episode one hundred and two of Snakes and Stogies, brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. They're right here. My box is uh, my square is different. <laughs> and uh, this episode is going to be a good one, as I'm sure a majority of us know. There's been a lot of stuff going on in terms of like morph market and a testing uh, policy, and then a reversal of that policy, and so now we're gonna. We have the best of the best in terms of like the greatest minds of herpetoculture. And then when it comes to pathology and stuff like that, and the cream of the crop, that's right. I mean, over here to our, uh, yep. My right, your left other way, buddy. That way. Yeah. We're already making this look really <laughs> whack. Yeah. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> this is Dr. Zach Lofman, who hey, we've had on THP at least twice. Um, our buddy, Dr. Travis Wyman, right below me and Phil here. Yep. And then Steve Tillis underneath of, uh, Doc Lopen and Phil. Um, we were going to have Dr. Julander with us. He had to bow out last minute, so um, that's okay. We have plenty of good good people to... Give us their of two course. cents on, on the matter. I uh, I messaged the uh, the good Dr. Drew Lander sometime a little while ago, and uh, he said he will be listening, and he will be uh, uh, here in spirit. Sweet. That he is. Good to have him in some form or other. Of course. Christian? 100%. Christian? <laughs> so, yes. Oh. 102, gentlemen. 102. Yes. What are you are you smoking on anything? We'll get cigars. I'm trying to like we're gonna kind of breeze through all the intro yeah. stuff because we got a lot to get to. We got a lot to, um, to get to. I uh, I actually had a beautiful um, limited edition VSG that somebody it's in the house somewhere that somebody gave me, but I'm still getting over the worst sinus nonsense I've had. Power through w- it. Worse than COVID, like just gross. Smoke and uh, the pain, well, that's why I am smoking through the pain. God bless. But <laughs> my uh, my palate is uh, tainted temporarily. So I felt I should not try to smoke a cigar and not like it. You know what I mean? I so. am officially taking like online courses to be a certified retail tobacconist. And then I'm going Very to be nice. a certified master tobacconist at some point, too. So Excellent. Congratulations um, in, uh, in advance. It's like a DeVry version of a certification, so let's not let's not make it sound fancier than it really is. I mean, no, I'm, but you'll, you'll I'm still no Doc Wyman by any means, but <laughs> you'll you'll still be a sommelier of tobacco. That, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much what it is. But I'm smoking a Oliva G Maduro, and then once this is done, because I feel like this is going to be a two stick show, uh, La Imperiosa from Crown Heads. Nice, phenomenal smoke, especially in this this Toro size. Love that. And I made them both long because I feel like good. I'm going to need them. And I got my handy dandy uh, can of, of heart disease right here next to me as well. So. Delicious. We're is off anyone, to a great start. Is is any of the uh, the uh, academics in this group partaking in any adult beverages and or tobacco? Nope. Nope. <clears throat> yeah, I might grab a beer halfway through, but uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> 
So, right. uh, Doc Wyman, you want to kick this shindig? All right. Um, yeah, so this was kind of motivated by the, uh, the eruption, as it were, um, that hit last week after Morph Market had that policy announcement and then walk back. Um, and I felt this was kind of necessary, not well, not directly because of that, but just indirectly because of so much of the chatter going around. It sort of kicked things up a little bit. It stirred yeah, things it up. Yeah, it kicked things up and, up and it, it kicked up that there's still so much misinformation going on about there. Um, and a lot of it was driven towards NIDO, but I think there's just a lot of misinformation in general about disease and reptiles. And so it seemed to me that since the hobby, you know, the hornet's nest has been kicked and everybody's kind of attention is up. Now would be a real good time to try and discuss this again, get more information out there for people so that we can try and knock down some of this misinformation, kill some of these rumors and try to get people thinking more about this in, you know, a proper and intelligent manner than just this, reactionary fear factor sort of knee jerk yeah. yeah you know the, the kicking and screaming and the hair on fire which yeah. that doesn't help anybody on you know regardless of which side of the fence you sit on so should we give like the cliff notes version of the policy um now or should we handle that sort of later as we, we can give it now or we can hit it later i mean because i'm still a little fuzzy on it i kind of understood the the gist of it but Okay, well, the, the Cliff Notes version is basically that John released a policy um, that basically said, you know, a lot of people have this health guarantee on their animals, but it's kind of like, you know, the default one for Morph Market is like four hours. And most people have, you know, you have to let me know within two hours, six hours the next day type of thing. Um, and John recognized that there has been an uptick in people who get their animals tested for these viruses, but the turnaround on that is not within two hours or four hours or anything like that. Right. So he was writing in this policy that basically said, if somebody gets, you know, wants to get one of these tests done, since it takes greater than four hours to get the results back, as long as they get video or picture proof that they're taking the tests and sending them in within two hours of receiving the animal, then if, you know, it takes 24, 48, a week, two weeks, depending on what lab it ends up going to and coming back, if the animal tests positive then, and there's a dispute between the buyer and the seller, if the seller doesn't have something explicitly written in their own terms of service, then Morph Market will side with the buyer. Okay. So personally, I don't feel that's unreasonable. And I want to clear something. Um, it's not widely known by a lot of people, but I am sort of technically classed as Morph Market staff. Anything that I'm talking about tonight I'm talking about from my own personal perspective. I am not speaking as a representative of Morph Market. I think John has made everything clear there. And 
John is ultimately Morph Market, so I'm not speaking for him. This is all me speaking as Dr. Travis mm -hmm. personally, not Dr. Travis Morph Market staff, you know, and my position on staff has nothing to do with making policies and things. You know, I, I help moderate the forums, you know, I will help sometimes if there are, you know, questions about morphs that are put up in the market itself that don't look right, but I'm not, I'm not making policies or things like that. So don't go gun at John saying, well, Travis said this as a representative of morph market, because I'm not saying that. I'm saying as me personally, yeah. I think that was a legitimate policy to put in place because if people are testing and they do get something that comes back hot, obviously it's going to take more than that four hours. Right. And I don't think that it's unreasonable that if a seller has said, you know, you only have four hours, that's kind of, you know, impossible to, to, to give a, you know, a viral test or a bacterial test or a crypto test or something like that to come back in that time. Um, but then everybody blew up over it. And, you know, there was a lot of, you can't force me to test my animals. You can't force the hobby to test animals. That's not what this policy was saying. It wasn't saying you had to test your animals. It wasn't saying you had to register as being a seller that tests their animals. It was basically just saying, we're putting this new policy in that says, if somebody tests their animal, it comes back hot, unless you specifically said, we don't accept disease tests. Right, that was the opt out. Right. You just okay. have, you know, and if you don't want to do that, you could change your own terms of service to say, we don't test, we don't accept testing. And, you know, that it's like, well, you're doing that to just blackball, you know, you're not blackballing people. It's not what it's for. And, you know, right. It, so mm -hmm. it, it blew up. And like I said, so much of the blow up was, it was to me very obvious mm -hmm. that it was based on a lot more just misinformation on like sure. I said, on both sides, you know, you've got both sides pointing fingers at each other and screaming and yelling at each other. And that doesn't help the hobby as a whole. So I felt getting, you know, getting people in the know. You know I know that Zach has done a ton with crypto because he's had to deal with it mm -hmm. up in his collection. Steve is literally studying this virus. And so, you know, who to go to better than somebody who's actually, you know, on the cutting edge and the breaking right. wave of it. Um, you know, I, I don't work specifically on snake diseases, but I work on how to test samples for, you know, diseases and things, you know, very cryptic, hard to find things. I work a lot of sequencing. I work a lot of PCR. Um, I had wanted to get Justin in for the same thing. He's a virologist. He knows about, you know, NIDO in general. He knows a lot about viruses in specific. So unfortunately, we don't have him here, but, you know, we got his input some on the stuff we're going to talk about. So this, I hope, will help bring tempers down some on both sides mm -hmm. and maybe get people to see things in a little bit more clear light coming out the other end. 100%. So the uh, I know like Nido and crypto are kind of the two big ones that are sort of the, the bulk of the conversation currently, but I know there was other other things that you wanted to talk about that aren't as commonly seen or just aren't as uh, prevalent. 
Yeah, well, I don't know that it's they're not as prevalent. They're just not as frequently talked about. So, mm -hmm. um, like, yeah, the major things that we see are crypto. And basically anybody who works with Colubrids knows about crypto. Um, you know, Nido has become a big thing. It's primarily pythons. You have the arena virus IBD, inclusion body disease, in boas, um, which also is a problem for pythons. In fact, it tends to be a bigger problem for pythons because boas seem to be just kind of naturally resistant or resilient to it. But if a python gets it, almost inevitably it wipes the python down. Um, but you have other diseases that don't get a lot of talk about because they just don't make a big splash or people are, are unaware of them. Um, adenovirus, rheovirus, Aridiovirus, paramyxovirus, um, they're out there and they're not insignificant in some cases. Mm -hmm. So people don't talk about them, um, but they're there. And it's very possible and probable that some of these situations that people are seeing and hearing and finding have nothing to do with NIDO or crypto or IBD, but are, you know, one of these other ones and people don't know about it. I would definitely say that that is pretty accurate. There's a ton of pathogens out there that just aren't being tested for on any sort of broad level. And, you know, if there's one thing that working reptile diagnostic testing has told me is that if no one is testing for it, it is probably safer to assume that it is far more prevalent than uh, people realize. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure the the number of, of samples and tests and stuff you see, the, the amount of positive for anything is probably a little terrifying. It can be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, Not I mean, realizing it, how big that iceberg is below the surface, you know. It is and it isn't, especially when you're talking about serpentovirus, because there are so many um, asymptomatic positives. Um, that's where it, it does get a little bit more tricky. Is trying to determine when a, a virus is significant to the, you know, to mm -hmm. either the individual animal or, or more importantly, the colony as a whole. Right. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's over 80, right? Yeah, something like it's been a long time. It's been like about six months since I've done um, reorganized the um, database I have for all the genomes. But I think last time I did a tally, it was like 200 something unique genomes. Um, within that, I think I think it was 80 had five percent or more divergence from each other. Um, so it, there's a ton of. Uh, <clears throat> genetic variation out there in these viruses and that genetic variation like you know steve implied can have both big and small impacts on you know symptomology disease causing potential um you know and we can dig into that a little deeper now or later i mean whichever way we want to go. If we want to talk about some of the, the lesser known ones first, just to knock them out of the way, or we can just jump right into, you know, the Serpento, Nido, Clade, and so, Crypto as well. I mean, whatever we want to do. I think before anything, it's probably worth kind of just recontextualizing what it is that we're actually doing. Um, you know, it's not like we're taking, all of these animals originally come from, you know, some sort of wild origin. It's not mm -hmm. like we're passing them through an autoclave uh, before we set them in a tub and you know you couldn't so these are not 
sterile things. Um, you know, a lot of what I do is tissue culture. And when we have an animal that dies and we collect tissue and try to make a cell line from it, um, there's frequently bacteria or viruses just latent in the, the um, cell culture itself from the actual animal that might have been in X number of generations in captivity. You know, mm -hmm. the, the line of pathogen doesn't stop the second we put it in a, in a box. Yes. So, yeah, I think it, it is important to, you know, recontextualize that, that they don't just pop out of nowhere. You know, all this stuff has yeah. some source. Yeah, it, it all has origins. And yeah, that's, I think that's part of what leads to some of this misinformation is people think, you know, well, I practice good husbandry. And so my snakes are clean because, you know, they've all been captive bred and, you know, that just, that doesn't necessarily hold it up. I mean, you know, dogs have been captive bred for millennia and yeah. your dog still gets sick sometimes. Same right. thing with cats, horses, cow, you know, basically any domestic animal that you have, you still have diseases that all of them suffer. Um, you know, it's easy to point at somebody who, you know, picks up import animals and be like, well, that it makes perfect sense that they've got problems in there and they're bringing in wild animals. But even people who have completely closed collections, those things are still passing stuff around between them because nothing is like Steve said, nothing is sterile here. Right. And the way that we keep them too, the density of animals per square foot for some of these collections, you're just literally, it's like the golden corral for viruses, man. <laughs> yeah. They're just ready to walk right up to that buffet and start <clears throat> sneezing out or anything. Yeah. Between the, the, biosecurity or lack thereof around reptile expos and, you know, just the general standard, if, if general standards and general density, if you were to design a system to create a pretty virulent yeah. pathogen, we've done a very good job of it. Absolutely. Well, I guess that, that leads me to my, my first real question, and this is extremely rhetorical, but in the past, go back 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it was, you know, when reptile shows were first booming and, you know, people had tables full of animals and, and reptile pet shops started popping up here and there. Was it that the health issues that we're seeing today in a much more prevalent light, was it that they hadn't mutated or evolved to be the point that they are now? Or was it just, we just chalked up to, Oh, it's an import. It dies. It was, it's a result of complete ignorance. Right. Uh, crypto. I can't speak to the viruses. I can definitely speak to crypto. And for the record, I'm, I'm saying that I am not an expert on crypto. Um, I just had to deal with deal with it. And since I'm a academic nerd, that meant giving up 10 days of my life and reading every single thing I could possibly get my hands on and mapping it all out. And then talking to people that were the experts, the guys that were writing and, and the women that were writing those papers. Um, so I've, I've kind of have this, expertise if you will that's totally achievable for everybody listening to this thing if you just are willing to put in the time and learn and read because that's where and then obviously i had to apply to the collection um but these animals when when they're brought in from the wild one way to look at it is you know, we all know the horror stories of importation and how you go and you 
there might be, you know, for every Tokay gecko that makes it, there's two or 300 that die, or maybe two or 3,000 that die. So in a mm -hmm. weird way, from a biological point of view, you could kind of look at it as the animals that are most fit are the ones that are actually surviving to the table. Uh, and so when you're just working with those wild animals that we haven't taken their, their genome that's like this big and then whittled it down to this big, they're, they're stronger. But what that really means is that they're able to hide the disease better. So, you know, they start eating, blah, blah, blah. They appear to be great, but they're not. And one of the things like with crypto, the number of asymptomatic snakes in America right now is probably, I would go so far as to say it could be as high as 40 to 60% of colubrids have it. Um, yeah. Easy. Uh, it, it, and so the, the question then becomes like, well, what are we actually seeing? And I know that I've heard Steve talk about this with serpentifiers too. Um, and that it, it's, it's very naive and arrogant, in my opinion, to assume that you can beat this and you're, you don't have it if you have a collection of 50 plus snakes. Um, it's just going to be there. And that's basic yeah. biology. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, Morph Market put this clause into effect, being a biologist and, and trying to maintain that standard of cleanliness or whatever you want to call it, disease free. I don't see the problem, you know? Yeah. It, I, it, it just I don't. would agree. Yeah. A, a lot of it does come down to, to what the goal of managing any sort of pathogen in a colony is, because, you know, if, if the line you want to draw is absolutely nothing is getting in, that might not be a realistic bar to try and upkeep. You know, there's limitations right. on testing. Um, nothing is perfect. Nothing is watertight. So, you know, really, I think the proper mindset to go into it would be to assume that this stuff is very much out there. Um, you know, studies in the U.S. and uh, in Europe have found almost across the board between pythons around a 20% prevalence. Um, so it's out there. Um, and then really it's about managing the circumstances that 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 pathogen can actually cause disease because it would and i'm gonna you know not anywhere near as versed on crypto but but i would say at least as it pertains to serpentivirus it would actually be a, a pretty very small minority of, of positive snakes that actually go on to develop full-flung um you know life-threatening type illness With crypto, it's the same thing. They're, the number yeah. of adult snakes that have it is, is astronomical. It's something has to happen to that animal to lower it its homeostatic state to make it basically sick. And then that's when it expresses disease. But that animal could have had crypto for years. And every time it defecates, it's shedding spores. So, uh, you know, the, these, these pathogens that kind of have this boogeyman effect with people they're far more prevalent than people realize mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's the deal. So you have to almost kind of look at this from a biological philosophical point of view of like, well, how many asymptomatic carriers do I want in my collection? <laughs> do, do we just torch them all? Do we not torch them all? If it's not expressing yeah. disease, is it, it is disease, but is it actually, you know, harming my collection? Yeah, these are kind of the kind of questions that I think people don't really think about and should. Um, 
because it's just naive to assume that you, if you have a yeah. hundred ball pythons, that you don't have some virus lurking in there. Yeah. Sure. Now I will, and so I'm going to walk a, a pretty fine line here and say that, like, what I'll talk about next is, is just kind of my own personal thoughts, having worked with snakes for the past over a decade, and then kind of matching that with with what I've seen in a lab. And I would, I can narrow down a set of conditions that seem to commonly occur when we see outbreaks on like the collection scale. Um, you know, there's kind of, you're kind of talking about, it's a big group of viruses. They have multiple different uh, potential life strategies of, of how they want to replicate. Um, so yeah, it, it um, what I have seen is that a lot of times when you get this big collection killing virus it happens when you try and merge adult animals into an existing adult animal colony and it seems like there's kind of asymptomatic virus probably native to the colony and potentially a new virus that you're introducing and in both of those colonies independently those those pathogens didn't do anything um but you know maybe the cross reactivity between the actual individual snakes is not very high where you know, one strain in one colony does nothing, but then you immediately drop it into uh, another colony. And that's where you can kind of have problems occur on a, on a wider scale. And then I would say the only, uh, the other thing that, that seems to be commonly seen in the recipe that ends up in a, in a bad virus would be like, if you have a chronically sick snake, um, you know, if you have a snake that, that is just sitting there with an RI and it's not really getting better and it's not really getting worse at this point in my head, that is a virus mutation factory. And I am very heavy handed in terms of, of removing those animals from a colony at this point. So I will say that, that, you know, herpetoculture is still here. These pipe, uh, these pathogens probably themselves aren't, aren't anything that, uh, new, almost certainly the case. Um, you know, now we just have tools in our kit to be able to, to test for it and manage it. So it's really kind of the extension of a existing story and not, you know, right. the world is, is mm -hmm. ending. Um, you know, if you go through pretty basic biosecurity of, of being cautious about bringing stuff into a colony of managing stuff in a colony, when you do see problems, um, especially if you're buying neonate animals, that's a pretty safe route to go. You know, that there's very, there's things you can do that really hedge your bets into not ending up with problems, you know, before you even do a single test. Sure. Just, just going back to the first part of what you were saying. So you'd mentioned you're having a group of adult animals that has one strain and you have a, a group of animals that are also adults that have a different strain and they're both okay on their own. And then you put them all together in the same room. Well, strain B uh, that it therefore affects a snakes and then A strain affects B snakes, which causes them all to crash. That would be my, you know, just, again, just so I that I'm, I'm yeah. laminizing, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah this is... that, that would be my hypothesis on, okay. on a good way to and that, end up. And in that, a that makes spot. sense. Yeah, this yeah. is, we kind of touched on this, um, you know, like a year or so ago when I was on with Dr. Porsche. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, like Steve said, there is so much diversity within these viruses. Um, and, with that diversity, you know, part of that is very likely, you know, genus specificity or species specificity. And so you will have some of these strains that fundamentally are benign, but they're benign in the species they have, you know, essentially co-evolved with, um, 
or they're benign for some other species because the jump is just too far. You know, there there yeah. are there are colubrid serpentoviruses. Right. They don't yeah, seem to do know. anything to the colubrids, <clears throat> and they also don't seem to cross into that you know that boid barrier either because the difference is just too far. Yeah, um, I would definitely even go. Uh, so I, I, this kind of reminds me of some of the uh, the cell culture stuff that I do, which we try and isolate these viruses so we can actually work with live virus in the lab to really um, experiment with it. But some of these viruses are are super super selective on what they'll grow on, and it, it's really interesting. You know, I had a, a Burmese python virus, and I literally couldn't grow that virus on Burmese python cells. Yet I have this ball python virus. And it's a serial killer and will totally wipe out any cell line I, I put it on. So, you know, it, it it's a big umbrella that we're talking about here. And part of what's significant is the individual virus that's at play. Part of what's significant is, you know, the actual colony, how it's managed itself and the individual animals and their uh, resilience within that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there was some time back uh, before any of this was relative, there was an issue with a lot of the big box pet stores uh, when maybe 10, 15 years ago when, you know, ball pythons and red tail boas had really boomed in terms of people that aren't herpers, you know. And I remember there was a thing with, I don't know if it was Petco or PetSmart or Pet Supermarket. And they basically said, well, the husbandry is the same for a ball python as it is for red tail boas. So just keep them in the same enclosure. You know, and both snakes die because they're drinking from the same water bowl and they're swapping spit. And uh, who knows what the real reason was for that, but all the other snakes in there were fine. And if you had a ball python in the same rack as the, the ball python that died with the boa, the ball python was fine and vice versa. So it, it, it makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, some of those, you know, that could have been some IBD stuff, um, you know. I remember when IBD was, you know, what was probably about 20 or so years ago, we, we basically saw the same thing with IBD that we're seeing right now with NIDO. You know, everybody was panicking. Everybody was freaking out because and everyone had boas, right? You know, everyone had boas and, oh my God, all these boas, they're stargazing. There's all these problems and people, boa keepers started picking up ball pythons to use basically as canaries. Mm -hmm. in the coal mine because yeah ibd is generally super lethal to pythons um so boa guys would expose these ball pythons to their collection and if the ball python died then they'd know that they had ibd lurking in their collection now you know as time has gone on and we have found there are some boas or there are some pythons that are actually kind of resistant to IBD itself. And it's not always just an absolute killer. Um, you know, there are some pythons that, you know, they, they reach that same static state with IBD and they can persist and carry on with it. And again, that could be some fundamental change in the virus that they were specifically exposed to, or, you know, it could just be a survival of the fittest thing where you found a python that just wasn't susceptible. And maybe that's where a lot of the confusion lies, at least for, you know, myself. And I, I know I've raised this question to, to P and Cody and, you know, in pertaining to Nido specifically is, okay, you know, I've got a positive animal. It's completely asymptomatic. 
It's no, there's no issues with it whatsoever. I've had it for years. I haven't had any problems, but now all of a sudden I need to either euthanize it or completely separate it for the rest of its life. Same with, with crypto. You know, if it's as prevalent, obviously people aren't losing their collections every day. You know, people aren't having mass die-offs or anything like that. And so it's kind of one of those things where people are like, yeah, it exists, but nothing's happening. So what, and I don't, the question is, I guess, is, is okay, it's there, so now what? Well, and I think what we will probably end up seeing is sort of a balancing effect. Like, you know, I think we've seen it with crypto in the Colubrid world. They've sort of just embraced the idea that, you know, crypto is there. And most people understand that crypto is there. That's accurate, right, Zach? Yeah. Like most Colubrid keepers know that. And they they try to treat it and at least most of the, you know, most of the ones that are going to be honest about it will try to treat it and regulate it and keep it under control in their collections. And if they have an eruption, they're not, you know, sending out all of these sick, sick animals. Um, right. But you're also not hearing about these massive eruptions because the Colubid world knows that they happen, um, mm -hmm. you know, but the Python world is only still like coming to grips in the early end of, oh, my God, somebody just lost their entire collection to Nido. And, you know, this happens, but this happens probably for a bit of a reason, you know, like Steve said, somebody merged two collections or, you know, something has, you know, somebody went away for a month and they're, you know, the guy who was taking care of their collection wasn't taking care of them to quite the same level. So when they came back, there had been enough of a change that the animals slipped just a little bit in their health and it allowed the virus to amp up enough through it the collection the scale. Yeah. that it just, yep. sure. you know, boom, and it melted the collection down. And then you hear about it and everybody in the Python world freaks out. And, right. you know, this this scare factor thing yeah it's scary but it's not always like this it's not always the end of the world and you know justin you said it great is i have seen so many sad cases of people saying you know i tested my animal and it came back with nido so i had to put my whole collection down because i didn't want to test all of them but i have to assume they all have it and it's like it's no, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and it wasn't yeah. just, you know, they tested a new animal that they just got in and the animal was outwardly healthy in all appearances, you know. Now, one, I have to say, why wasn't that animal quarantined that you suddenly feel you have to destroy your whole collection? But two, if the animal is outwardly healthy appearing and now you know that it's tested positive, if you are maintaining good biosecurity practices. You know, if you're not throwing all of your pythons in the same tub as you switch their mm -hmm. media out and their substrate out, if you're not just taking the rat that you slammed in that sick one's face and it doesn't eat it, and then so you go slam it in another one's face, you know, if you're not doing those things to spread the disease, then your other animals are probably safe. And so, and yeah, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And if I, you I, want yeah. to test and you find your animals are positive, that then becomes a matter of, I need to monitor these animals. I need to 
keep a closer eye on them. I need to maybe up my husbandry care on them. But if they're not sick and dying, why are you freaking out and panicking the same mm -hmm. way, you know, if 50% of Collier Brits have got crypto and they're not all dying, why aren't we all panicking and killing all of our Collier Brits off? Right. With, with, uh, Oh, go ahead, real, real quick, because I don't want to lose on this particular thing. So I'm a good example of this. So with my non-venomous stuff, I do quarantine. With my venomous stuff, I'm physically not allowed to have a quarantine per Fish and Wildlife because I'm only inspected and certified and verified by Fish and Wildlife for one room for the venomous. So that means that if I bring in new venomous, it has to basically just go on a different wall. It's better than nothing, but I'm not, I don't have the physical ability to do that. And that's something that I acknowledge and that's something that I understand. And if I bring home a baby rattlesnake and it kills off the whole room, that's something I'm, I'm, I have to deal with because unfortunately we have laws, we have rules and regulations. And even though sometimes they don't always make the most sense, they are there for a specific reason. Um, that being said though, because I know this is a possible factor, I do the reverse where if I am going to get rid of or sell or gift or trade a, one of those venomous from that venomous room, it goes into reverse quarantine where now it's isolated to make sure that before it leaves, then it goes through the, the proper rigor so that I don't infect someone else's thing. God forbid I have something I don't know about. So I think it also comes down to, you know, if you're, if you're going to quarantine, great. If you're not going to quarantine, great, but acknowledge what you're doing and be honest with yourself. You know what I mean? What were you saying, Dr. Loveman? With, with the crypto, the, so as we all know, colubrids have a bazillion different communities. There's the hognose community, the corn community, the milk community, the lamp community, garter community, like just tons. <clears throat> there you go. And uh, I, I do think there's still an element of panic in the colubrid community. Um the the co the community that's had to deal with this the most is the hognose snake community. And what's really weird about hogs and crypto is that you know, there's there's crypto spiridium serpentis, and hognose snakes can at West Plains hognose, Western hognose, whatever you want to call them. They can get serpentis, but the one that seems to really do a number on them is Varinae, which is the lizard huh. uh, based crypto spiridium. And what's been rather interesting to me is that if you produce snakes and then you know sell a snake and then somebody tests it and it comes back as crypto you're going to get a scarlet letter and that's understandable to a point especially if you know that you have it and you're hiding it but the assumption always is that the person knows that they had it they're just hiding it um and, and i don't I, I i think that that's part of this if if we're going to deal with disease you kind of have to um Everybody needs to put their big boy and big girl pants on and understand that people can make a mistake and it doesn't mean that they're the worst herpetoculturalist known to mankind. Uh, yeah, I know I a would... lot of people will actually, when if you tell the breeder they have crypto, you know, there's mass panic and then and then they'll they'll move forward. The yeah, thing that pathogens do not care if you think you're doing everything right. They don't. They do <laughs> not care. <laughs> uh, but the thing that's that's horrible about cryptosporidium and I'm actually curious 
to hear if this is the case with serpentivirus, um, is the vector and the, and the pathogen load for a snake to become infected is ridiculously small. So with cryptosporidium, as little as few as five spores ingested through like drinking, and now the animal has it. And given the, the crazy life cycle that cryptosporidium has, um, they do a lot of asexual reproduction. So you they, basically the snake ingests a single spore, and then that single spore divides and is now two spores, four spores, eight spores, 16 spores, blah, blah, blah. And so that's why it doesn't really require that much for the snake to become completely infected. But one of the, the main vectors is you can like try to be as sterile as humanly possible. But if you have flies, forward flies, uh, every time a snake goes to the bathroom, a forward fly goes to the poo um, and gets those spores on it. They are a, a, a vector of this disease. So like in that situation, you can try to have a crypto-free collection, but you have a forward fly, you're doomed. So what we did at the university, what some people have done is they basically will test their snakes, get crypto positive snakes, and then have a crypto, we call it a crypto ward. And so basically there's an adage when it comes to diseases where like space equals safety. So you may, and doors are biggie. So you basically go up one or two floors and then put as many doors between as humanly possible. And that's a way to kind of have your crypto snakes and your non-crypto snakes. But I also understand there's probably people listening to this who are like, why the hell would I keep a crypto snake if you're telling me five spores and a fly and the whole collection is going to get it? But the thing is, if you if you test that, if one of your animals tests positive, um, it, it's likely you've got eight more asymptomatic snakes. So, you, you know, this really involves some soul searching. And, and some understanding of basic disease biology to kind of get past the whole, just because your snake tests positive for one of these viruses or cryptosporidium or another pathogen, it doesn't mean you need to burn the house down or nuke the collection. Um, yeah, it, but, it is definitely nowhere near as simple as yeah. animal plus pathogen equals bad time. No. Great example. If you have the flies and you get rid of all your snakes and you're going to start over again, those flies are going to basically perpetuate the disease. And so you have to also get rid of the flies. And the flies can live in your drain, like in the elbow of your drain. You can have a forward fly colony surviving there. Nobody thinks I'm going, I have to clean out all my elbows and all my drains in order to get rid of this disease. And then you bring the animals back and then boom, you've got crypto again. So like it's it's a learning to live with it and deal with it is much better than trying to obliterate it. Um, yeah, it's a much more realistic approach. Yeah, well, I mean, the in whole terms point of, of... Oh, go ahead, Steve. Uh, uh, in terms of you know making that same sort of parallel for uh, nidoviruses or serpentaviruses, yeah, we really don't know what the the viral load is to infect a different snake, and you know, there's so much variety that it's likely to be different for you know each one of these things, but it definitely seems to be more likely to spread in directly adjacent uh, animal enclosures. So it seems like 
for at least some of these, there needs to be a pretty good amount of contact between animals to, to really pass along that pathogen in a most, in a lot of circumstances, but nowhere close to every circumstance. So it, yeah, it's, it's hard. I don't know that I have a fully fleshed out end game of what I think a entirely responsible herpetocultural community would look like dealing with these pathogens. It's, it's still, I would say, a very much unwritten book. And because there's just so much variation that I really think, uh, you know, you just do the best you can with the knowledge you can. And hopefully that'll inject some forgiveness in the human, in, in the uh, hobby to really kind of understand mm -hmm. that, that, you know, pathogens don't automatically equal bad seller. Again, you can do everything right and still end up in a spot where right. you never thought you would. So, yeah, I mean, Erica Paris is a really good example of that. Like she cut off her collection. She tested stuff you know did her best to make sure that she had nothing coming or going still had nido like nido still popped up even after she had stopped bringing in i think it was chondros um you know she did everything possible like she really went above and beyond to to make sure that that wasn't a problem and then still got a positive animal out of it yeah, yeah. so i have two buildings that, that i work out of here and i kind of within those buildings have two different strategies for how I'm uh, dealing with uh, nidovirus or serpentivirus specifically. So um, the one building has a lot of blood pythons in it. And I call that my virus neutral colony, where every single animal that's in there has tested negative three times. And yet every single year, I'll get one animal that'll get stressed enough during the breeding season to pop with a respiratory infection and then test positive. So that that's been a closed colony for almost the entirety of those animals' lives. Like the sequence of that matches the blood python virus that I knew was present when I had seen disease uh, in the past. And so, you know, here's an example of a colony where, where there's virus in there somewhere and I can't find it because if they're happy animals, they're not going to test positive. They, mm -hmm. If they're not stressed, they're not shutting enough virus to test positive. So, you know, I don't really know what the best way to, to navigate that type, uh, you know, that kind of colony is, but, you know, we don't see vertical transmission. So if I'm really paranoid about it, the easiest thing I can do is just hatch my babies off in a different building or uh, keep them in a different room, which is what I did with my uh, second building. And so the second building, I really wanted to take as biosecurity as kind of far I could take it in, in a, in a hobbyist type scenario. So it has, yeah. Um, yeah, it also, because I have, uh, I'm in Florida, I needed the double entry anyway. So I turned that into a airlock with foot bath and foot wash and, you know, sanitizing protocol with led indicators to determine when you can, um, you know, you've, you've waited enough uh, time for the contact time to come in for the, uh, sanitizers. It's just so ridiculously over the top in terms of, of precautions I put in place and every animal that is in there is stuff I've tested three times as neonates. So, you know, should theoretically be the, the safest possible configuration for a colony. And I will be surprised if I can truly end up in a point where I can say even that biosecure building has no serpentivirus in it. Like it just, right. it's there. But even with the best you can, I, I don't really expect perfection. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes back to the, the, you know, the question I asked earlier is like, if that's the case and you now have positive animals, but they're, they're completely fine. Like, what do you, 
what do you do? You know, it's like, that's my biggest issue with the whole thing is like, I have a ton of corn snakes. I could have crypto. I haven't tested and I'll go ahead and throw out sort of where I stand. As far as that goes, I, you know, myself and Billy hunt, I think Phil's kind of in that boat too. Like unless the snake is outwardly sick and there's an issue that is not in the norm, like there's something that is clearly not that is out of, out of what that, that baseline for that animal. Yep. I'm not going to yeah. test unless I have a re- like a right unless I have a, I feel like I have a real reason to like if something comes up Condor stops eating when it's been eaten solid for years all of a sudden stops it's not in a shed cycle there's no other issues then I'd be concerned then it's like okay something's up but then it, you know I'm going to go through other potential areas where that would troubleshooting cause yeah exactly right but I will test like I have no issues with testing but it's not right. like I'm not going to go test every single animal in my collection because I'm scared that crypto might be there. Yeah. Yeah. And let's also, let's also say that just because a snake develops some kind of RI doesn't mean that it's Serpento and doesn't mean that it's going to kill everything off, you know? Yeah. There's so if we look at statistics, um, there was a paper out in 2019 that, you know, basically directly taken from the paper, despite evidence that serpentoviruses are common and are potentially significant pathogens, the extent of susceptibility to infection and disease remains poorly understood. Is so, that is that the one that's longitudinal cross-sectioning? Uh, Senglin. I, I, I think it could oh, be the longitudinal cross-sectioning. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mark D. Senglin? Yeah. Okay, so um, I, have, I have a few of those graphs that I... Yeah. I have on this on the uh, screen in case you guys wanted to use them. But there was another one from last year, uh, Shlatu. He, um, they found that of almost 400 positive animals, 400 NIDO positive animals, only 75 of them actually showed symptoms. So that's like 20% rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can. And but I, the yeah. flip side is also that out of 900 animals that tested negative, 130 showed symptoms so that's like a 15 percent rate and from that paper they specifically say there is no correlation between symptoms and finding serpentivirus positive you know establishment so that goes to justin's point of or phil's point of just because your animal is sick doesn't mean it has nido and you'll see that a lot too like you know people are like well my animal died and it was wheezing it was sir it was it was nido it's like well did you send that animal in for pathology or did you just assume that it was nido because right. nido is the hot button thing right now mm-hmm. i mean it could have yeah. been paramyxovirus nobody thinks about paramyxovirus but that's a huge killer yeah. and it causes basically the same symptomology that we see in nido it causes respiratory distress it causes mucus discharge it can cause neurological symptoms so you could be having a paramyxovirus outbreak in your colony and you just blame it on NIDO because that's the hot button ticket right now. Right. But I mean, in y'all's opinion, I mean, is, is sort of where I sit with that. Is that an outlandish place to be in terms of the whole thing? Like, honestly, I mean, you mean I think not, it's not, basically, don't test unless it's sick, right? Yeah, right. I think that's basically, I mean, I look at my reptiles the way I would look at basically any pet. You know, with some slight caveats, you know, right. I take, you know, when you've got a dog, 
you pretty much the same way you do with yourself, you take your dog into the vet once a year for a wellness visit. Now, part of that's also because you've got those regulations that say, you know, you have to have your dog get his rabies shot every right. year, you know, but aside from those annual tests that you do just for wellness, when do you take your dog or your cat or your horse to the vet? You take it when it's sick. Okay. It's so acting weird. Right. So that's the same thing. I'll take my snake and test it when it's acting weird, when it's acting sick. Now, there's one other time when we very frequently take our cats, our dogs, our horses, our rabbits, our whatever in. That's when we first buy them. You know, you go to a breeder, you pick out the dog that you want from their litter, you get that puppy. And what's the first thing you do? You take it to the vet and it's a wellness check, but it's a, it's a start off wellness check. Right. And that's how I see a lot of, but I can see that as a direction of, you know, these, I just bought a snake from breeder X and I tested it for Nido or I tested it for IBD or I tested it for crypto. You know, that's that first wellness test. Now, if I bought that dog and I took it into the vet and the vet says, your dog has parvo virus, then I would go back to the dog breeder and say, I got parvo. Your, yeah, your dog has part, the dog that I just problem. bought from you has parvo. And a reliable dog breeder will say, okay, we need to make this right. And to me, that's, you know, that was the legitimization that, that I saw John going for with this morph market policy was, you know, let's, let's bring the reptile hobby into the same legitimate sphere that all these other pet industries have. Mm -hmm. Like it should be. Right. And, you know, so it was very discouraging for me to see like, you know, big names and well-known people thinking that this was a terrible, horrible idea because it's like, now wait, you're supposed to be one of these, you know, these preeminent breeders. If somebody came to you and said, I bought an animal from you and it tested positive because I did a wellness visit, why why wouldn't you act like, you know, a, do a, something about it? Right. Yeah. A dog breeder or a snake breeder. Now, there are some there are some breeders out there that will, you know, I didn't I didn't see anything, you know, I didn't see like um and I'm just grabbing names. I'm not throwing people under buses or anything. Like I didn't, I saw a lot of chatter. I didn't see all the chatter, obviously. I didn't see um, Kabilka say anything. But I know from a personal friend, he bought a snake from Kabilka. He tested. It came back positive. He called Justin and said it was positive. Justin said, I understand. Send it back. I'll refund you. You know, so there's that legitimacy. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that Justin was willing to do that. Um, you know, and I found out later that Justin tested that animal when he got it back and it came back negative. And, you know, then this comes down to that everybody's like, well, all these tests are unreliable. You know, all these breeders are saying all these tests are unreliable because people get NIDO positive tests and they're not really positive. You know, I would say people don't understand the difference. Well, not necessarily. Difference. I don't think people understand the positive, the negative, the frequency of false positives, which mm -hmm. is... Well, it's not an impossible thing. Those are kind of low and well-designed tests, but they're also dependent on the nature of the test. And if, you know, the buyer sends it to one lab, but the breeder ends up sending it to another lab, that could account for why you get two different test results. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It could. Yep. 
Let me ask this too, since we're on this this real quick. Is there because I have I'll be honest, I've never tested anything for Nido. Um it on these Nido tests, when you get your results, is it cut and dry like a COVID test where it says positive or negative, yes. or is it a percentage, much like some of the other like human illnesses where it says, okay, between you know, one and four is you're sick, but the test goes to ten. So if you're if you're a number ten, you're fine. But if you're number four, oh, you're sick. Like, is there is there a scale to this, or is it just yes or no? Steve might be able to better talk on this, but from the type of testing that I will do, you know, I I work a lot with uh, quantitative PCR tests. Um, those they're not necessarily binary, but they're often used as a binary. Um, usually a qPCR test gives a score back that's kind of high or low. There's a threshold level that we mark as this is positive. If it's anything below that threshold, we call it negative. In reality, it may not be truly negative. It could just be that whatever is there is it's such a low volume that doesn't hit right. that magic threshold that we put yeah. down. It's so low it doesn't really make a mark. Right. Um, there are other tests, um, you know, more basic just PCR tests where they, again, they're binary in as much as you're not looking at uh, a kinetic time frame of how it happens. You just look at the end point and there's either a signal that says there is a positive signal here or there is not a positive signal here. And again, if there's not enough there to get that reaction high enough it'll say negative even though it's not truly negative so the reason the reason i ask is because i could see several people in our community uh who are not necessarily i don't want to say they're uneducated but who are not as savvy to it much like myself like i said i've never used one of those tests i have no idea and i read the manuals i'm not one of those guys that doesn't but i could see where someone sees that percent scale and maybe reads it incorrectly and overreacts or reads it correctly and underreacts. So that was the reason for my question. Well, is it the same with, with crypto too? I mean, when you get a crypto test back, what are the, what are the results usually? Is it just a I positive or negative? Normally positive, negative. Well, Does it denote the, uh, uh, it, and then it denotes snake the, versus lizard. Yes. And, and, and okay. you can, um, with the most frequently used lab, uh, it will tell you, the species so and that's through <clears throat> basically phylogenetics they're putting it into clades and you know all that kind of good stuff yeah the, the problem with crypto is that the damn spores have this for lack of a better word spore coat around them that is extremely difficult to get to open up to get yeah. the the dna out to actually get the positive and so that's why uh i've i've talked to a lot of people about crypto um and i'll say you got to do it in triplicate just because you get a negative doesn't mean you're in the clear uh because what could happen is with a crypto um sample that you're sending off to the lab you're most of the time what people are doing is they wait for their snake or lizard or whatever to go to the bathroom and then you take the swab and then you you know swab it down in the feces if you swab the urates, there's there's going to be spores there, but unless it's like complete liquid crap, 
there's probably not going to be that many spores there. Uh, and so then you've swabbed the wrong part or you swab the feces itself. And as that bolus of poos leaving the, leaving the animal, certain parts of the gut are going to have more spores than other others. And if you swab the wrong part, you may actually somehow not get that many spores and an asymptomatic snake. That's the deal. If it's a symptomatic snake and you have the, the pure diarrhea, it doesn't matter where you put that swab. You're probably going to get enough because these things are shedding millions of spores. I mean, the number of spores that are, are, are leaving is crazy. In a asymptomatic snake, it might be shedding hundreds of spores. It might only be like 150, 200 spores. So if you don't get the spore on the swab, uh, you're not going to you're not gonna get the positive test. And then the lab has the hard part of actually getting that spore to crack open, yeah. which and for is an analogy very hard there, to do. <laughs> yeah. For an analogy there, um, like if you think of the, the, the living modal active crypto organism, it's basically like a tomato. You could squish it really easily with your lab techniques but the spore is like a coconut. And when I say like a coconut, I don't mean like the little brown one you get at the store. I mean like the one that's I'll got the a giant one. green yeah. husk around it. If you yeah. want to get into the center of that, the force that you use to squish a tomato is not going to do a damn thing. You need a jackhammer to get in there. Right. So, so I think we could probably use this as an opportunity to kind of contrast between the two. I know, you know, crypto is incredibly resilient in the environment, whereas mm -hmm. these RNA viruses in contrast are very much not. So I can kind of go into my research, but I guess before, if you want to like set the baseline of what, you know, what it takes to truly uh, decontaminate a room or equipment or a colony that has crypto, you know, these spores are incredibly resilient. Yeah. The there's a lot that circulates as to what people think will kill crypto. And I've, I've said this on the THP with you guys. I said yeah. it on um, from the Your ground show. back in the day. I think I even, I, I mentioned it a couple times on my podcast. Right. Uh, with, with cryptosporidium, there's basically three things that will kill. Well, we don't even use the word kill it. Technically the, the, the terminology is deactivated because um, it's an apicomplexid protozoan, which if you really want to learn about, like, if you want to want to learn about an organism that's as close to an alien as you can get, just do a deep dive on apicomplexa. I mean, they are nuts. Uh, but the thing that, that, that gets through that coat is 12% or higher hydrogen peroxide that, that will kill it. That is not the hydrogen peroxide you buy at the superstore, sorry, at the supermarket or the drugstore. That's six percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that tickles it. Like it's just kind of like ooh, and that's the extent of it. I mean, you're not hurting it, killing it, anything. You might kill off a couple weak individuals, but um, you need the the food grade is what it's oftentimes called, and you can get that on Amazon. Um, and that's not that's not that harmful to us. Like it's not going to cause like. <laughs> oh, no, it's harmful. Oh, it's harmful. Oh, okay. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's gloves. That's be in a very well ventilated area. Yeah. Like if if you get that on your hands, like you turn if you've white. ever used just the the home stuff that you buy at Walmart, right? And you use it for so long that your finger just the finger ridges get white. Yeah, the the twelve percent stuff you spill it on your hands you. and you you get that white burn. Like okay. that. And if that's it goes I, up into your yeah. your you breathe it in your mucal 
your mucus glands start to dry out almost immediately and it, it stings and burns. It's just not pleasant stuff. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that will kill the spores, which is really interesting to me, is uh, sunlight. So, uh, but, but, and, and we're talking like if you have a high UV index day, one of the best things you can do to get rid of the stuff is to hit it with the 12% um, hydrogen peroxide. And we'll talk about what that means here in a second. And then immediately take the enclosures outside and put them into the sun. Um, and then really cold temperatures, like minus like 10, 20, 30 below zero, uh, will also deactivate the animal. But like all the bleach does nothing to crypto. That's wild. Um, ammonia will kill it, but it, the spore has to sit in high concentrated ammonia for 12 hours. And who the hell wants to do yeah. that? Um, the, the kill time, by the way, for the peroxide is about 20 minutes. So that means wow. that it's not just you put it on and you're dead. Uh, and I'm sure Steve's going to tell you, like, that's kind of how the viruses will work. But um, with the crypto, it's you're hammering it and the stupid spores have to sit in the liquid for up to 20 minutes to then deactivate. So that's why, like, just sunlight works. But the problem with cryptosporidium, and this is the biggie, is that, remember, we only require, like, two to ten spores for the snakes to become infected and if you think i got pvc enclosures all around me right now and when you screw those things together you've got that little gap contact point where they come together and we've all done the thing where you wash your enclosure and then the urate poo whatever kind of goes to the edge and then goes down into that crack you can have the spores just chilling down there and think i cleaned out everything so to really, I mean, if you're super paranoid and you absolutely want to make sure that you've, you've wiped it out and you still can't really even get to that point, but you can get as close as possible, you may want to actually contemplate just disassembling the PVC enclosure and just laying it out in the sunlight. Um, contact time for UV, I think it's like an hour, 10 to 15 minutes. It's not that long, uh, but, but you know, that's it. I, I know that getting killing off and wiping out crypto through sterilization is it's a nightmare scenario i literally when we had our big outbreak and i think it was um 2018 that's what i did my entire spring break we disassembled i didn't go to like on a field trip or anything like that i got a tyvek suit prepared me for covid very nicely uh bought some steam cleaners a whole bunch of hydrogen peroxide and then basically took apart 20 pvc enclosures conveniently we had a polar vortex happening at the time uh, so we steamed them, we hit them with hydrogen peroxide. Um, we then put them out in the bright sunshine and it was negative 20 outside. And I do think that we actually were, that's as close to a complete kill as I'm ever going to get, but I'm not going to say it was a complete kill. Yeah. So, yeah. Now let me ask real quick, since we're on the topic, if I, let's say I get crypto and my entire collection dies <laughs> and I have no animals left. Mm -hmm. But I clean out all the cages with 12% and eh, I don't do the sunlight thing because I don't have any animals. They're dead. What do, what do I care? And six months later, I say, you know what? It's time to buy another snake. How long are those spores going to live in that cage or even the protozoans themselves before they're dead and gone? How long they're can like... they lurk? Right. They yeah, exactly. lurk better than the best lurker. Okay. We're, we're talking... Nobody really knows the answer to that question because okay. no one's done a study long enough to figure it out. Wow. But they can live years. 
I, I don't, I mean, that's the whole point of an endospore. These animals, right. if you think about a parasite, because you know, this is a little bit different than a virus. When it comes to a, a eukaryotic parasite, their main goal is to get out in the environment and then they have to persist in that environment long enough for their host to come by serendipitously, by the way, because no colubrid wakes up in the morning. It's like, you know what? Crypto today. That's what I'm going to get. They just don't yeah. do that. So that's why the, the organism basically manifests itself and does the asexual reproduction and all that craziness. And then when, when you have the act of pathology kicking in with crypto, that's when the snakes are shedding millions of spores. Um, and then what's even cooler, and and yeah, if you're a good biologist, you look at these things, and even though like I hate crypto, I hate what it did in my collection, but I really respect the bastard. I mean, it's a pretty cool yeah. critter. Yeah. It, the part of the life cycle corresponds with air, with times of physiological stress. And if you think about like temperate snakes, one of the best, one of the major stressors is coming out of hibernation or brumation, whatever you want to call it, and breeding. And that is the best time if you're a crypto organism for the snakes to be shedding you because this is when all the snakes are together. Yeah. And so, so and they don't want to do that just necessarily like in the middle of brumation. They want to hit them when they're stressed and sexual reproduction causes stress, physiological stress. So that's a that's probably not an accident that that's part of the organism's biology. Right. Um, and so we see crypto manifest itself in people's collections with colubrids two times a year is when I start getting all kinds of messages. I, it, when you're putting things into brumation and you're cooling them down, uh, that's a stress inducing um, activity. And then when you're pulling them out of brumation and then you're putting your pairs together, uh, that's, that's stressful. Uh, yeah. And so I would then say you that, see that, disease take off. I would say that general rule also applies to, to the serpentoviruses or nidoviruses, which, which you can kind of, bake into your testing strategy because if you have those low level positives and you have a time of year where you know your colony is mm -hmm. stressed uh that's a good time to, to to maybe pick up one of those low level positives but um yeah i'm glad i, I had mean, yeah uh, that's how i would say that's how pretty much any pathogen is going to work in some respect is when when there is susceptibility that's when they are going to be at their strongest because that's when they can replicate the right. most because the animal's body is not going to respond and keep them in check as well. And that's probably why in November you keep hearing, you know, carpet guys, man, that one female's blown bubbles again. But again, that yeah. may not be just Serpento. That could that's be Paramixo. True. That could be Rio. That could be less likely to be adno but i mean it could be something else you could like also i, said, I just say think that everybody freaks out over nido because it's the hot button right now right i mean you also have opportunity it's not even it can get more complicated than that because you know you can have a stressed out snake that has a low level infection that's upticked a little bit higher and because that immune system is dealing with that then you have an opportunistic bacteria that jumps on the train there and really mm, takes yes. advantage of you know that yeah. none of this is easy <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that goes back to what you said at the beginning, where when you're trying to make cell cultures, you pick up all kinds of just random crap. You know, yeah, yeah. it may be NIDO, but it may not be that the NIDO is causing the disease. It's that the NIDO ticked up enough that a normally commensal bacteria. Sure. You know, like, you know, you've got a, a pseudomonid or something that's causing an active lung infection. Yeah. 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 
It could it so could be I, anything. It, it could be a, a, a gum infection that from because it bit the prey item wrong and got a tooth stuck in its own face, and that then honestly that spread and went bronchial, you know, or whatever. So I'm glad I had seen them do stupid things. That's it. <laughs> I'm glad I had Zach go first because it's way easier to deal with the uh, these viruses in terms of like the environmental context. Yeah, in terms of contrasting what a nightmare it could be if it was you know something more along the lines of, of crypto. Um, these being enveloped RNA viruses, they're pretty easy to break up, and once they're broken up, it's pretty easy to break up that RNA. Like they're really not designed to be tough things long term um so a lot of my research is taking uh this cultured live virus and then manipulating it uh you know through temperature or any number of sanitizers and then kind of seeing how much live virus is left in that sample um and so from preliminary data on that and based off of related viruses it looks like um outside of uh, 10 days there's pretty much no active virus left outside of the host um so and even within that, uh, the, that virus starts to degrade pretty quickly, where even after a couple of days, you're seeing massive drops in, in the number of live virus actually present in that sample. And um, likewise, they're pretty easy to kill off with sanitizers. So I've done um, preliminary research on bleach and ethanol, and both of those knock, knock these viruses back, unsurprisingly, no problem. So, you nice. know, you can kind of hypothesize that, you know, UV is going to be pretty equally... Uh, potent and you know that there's there should be a whole suite of sanitizers that will uh probably help quite a bit at least certainly in comparison to to if you're dealing with uh trying to sanitize equipment after crypto mm -hmm. so you know the only one i would hesitate on and this is purely from extrapolation um just from other somewhat related viruses would be chlorhexidine because i know that some of the other uh, viruses in the NIDO family, some of the coronaviruses, some of the other toroviruses are a bit more resilient to things like chlorhexidine. But again, and that's that is pure extrapolation. Sure, um, and that, but I know a lot words, of people use chlorhexidine yeah. in their collections. I've been using so. Zip. Yeah, that you literally took the words out of my mouth. I was, was going to ask you, gentlemen, is I use the blue two percent for my entire life. You know, and everyone told me, oh, well, red 5% is way too abrasive. It's way too harmful. And now I'm kind of like, well, blue doesn't do anything. I might as well go to the red. So. I, I switched mean, to Zep. That's what I've been using. I don't know if y'all have done anything with that. I get it at Tractor Supply. It claims to kill viruses and and kinds of stuff. I have no idea what the bleach, active ingredient man. is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure either. If you're not trying to get through a spore, uh, bleach is really just not good for living things. Yeah. <laughs> I have a PhD, by the way. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just kills stuff. I mean, I mean, I remember being in microbiology class and they explained how all this stuff worked and very, very made an impression on me that you can. I'm not saying don't use the fancy sanitizers, but if you're like, if you're if you're on a budget, bleach works. I mean, even Dawn ditch detergent is really good at taking those envelopes and just basically ripping things open and exposing the nucleic acids and killing stuff. So huh. very interesting. 
the active ingredient in ZEP is a quaternary amino compound. So it's a cationic surfactant. So it should break up a lipid envelope. Yeah, I know. It's totally. It's all chemistry. (laughs) That that should disrupt um, the viral particle envelope on these envelope viruses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess contact time is important to mention that, you know, it's not like dab it and it's good, but, you know. (laughs) Within reasonable use, yeah. These are not um, tough things. And, you know, I, working in a lab where we deal with a, lo- a wide variety of molecular organisms or microbial organisms, um, you know, when we're cleaning our hoods out, our contact time for bleach is 10 minutes. And that's 10 minutes wet. So, like, if you Straight just take undiluted, a, right? It's 10% bleach. So if you take 10% bleach on a paper towel and wipe it down and it dries in 60 seconds, that's not going to be enough contact time. What you should do is make up like a 10% spray solution and spray whatever you've got down and leave it damp for 10 minutes and then wipe it off. Okay. What is what? Okay. So I swear to God, I'm not wearing my tinfoil hat, but (laughs) ivermectin for the virus in animals. No. No. That's an anti-helmet. I mean, like, I that's... like I've used this stuff before. I know it's like for mites as a solution, okay? Right. Preface but, I'm not yeah. I'm not injecting it's... animals with straight ivermectin because that stuff is really yeah. gnarly. Ivermectin is very gnarly. It's it's an anti-helmetic. Um it yeah. does work against mites and things at certain doses, but again, really gnarly, good way to potentially poison yeah. the shit out of your animals. Um so in very, very broadly done, not very well-repeated studies with some viruses, ivermectin was shown to have an almost insignificant but slightly positive contribution. Now, it got a whole lot of... And I hate the fact that we're bringing COVID up because it gets so political and tying politics yeah, into snakes no, is well, just stupid. In the chat, it was but, a question. Yeah, we're going to keep it straight. Don't worry. Yeah, But the studies that linked ivermectin as helping COVID have all been proven to be horribly, horribly flawed. And further studies have showed that it is not helpful and is in fact well, potentially detrimental, mostly because yeah. people are then just mega dosing on the stuff and poisoning themselves. And so don't go giving ivermectin to your snakes thinking I'm going to cure the Nido because what you're going to do is kill your snake from the neurotoxicity of the ivermectin. And it ain't a quick death either. No, it's, it's gnarly. It's miserable. Great. But Oh my God, can you overdo it? So it it gives them neurologic problems. It gives them hepatic problems. It destroys their liver. It's, it's, horrible if you have ever seen a snake get overdosed on nido or toxified or not nido um by ivermectin or toxified by ivermectin it's it is a very unpleasant experience to see yeah i don't even use it on mites anymore now i just i switched to frontline spray and that works light years better and i don't have to worry about killing things yeah (laughs) outside of the mites so just just trying to get us back onto uh the train track so to speak so we covered uh, basically concepts of when one might want to test, 
when one should or possibly doesn't necessarily need to test and what goes involved in testing and keeping your eyes open to what your critters doing. Right. Yep. Um, I, I uh, think one thing to add to that list is sure. oftentimes when people see the manifestation of, of perceived disease. So you have, I can speak for colubrids. So you fed your Florida King a pinky and then you come in the next day and it's regurgitated the pinky. A, a lot of times people go straight to crypto and like, could just be husbandry. It could be cold. <laughs> like, I, I think that it's important for people when they, when they see the disease, what they perceive to be disease to kind of take a step back and almost start running through what we call null hypotheses, which is basically, all right, I think that it's crypto, but what are the other things it could be that led to this conclusion? Right. Uh, and Don't I know, let your hypochondria take over. Yeah. And, and I can use myself as an example. So I picked up a pair of um, blonde subox in July and they just got through their 60 day quarantine and I brought them into the main collection and I started feeding them and, Love my subox. Both of them regurgitated. I was like, son of a bitch. And I broke my own damn rule. I was like, oh, God, we've got crypto. And the panic ensued for about an hour. And then I calmed down and started looking like, what, what, what could have made them regurgitate beyond that? Because they didn't have any other symptoms. They didn't regurgitate during quarantine. They didn't um, ever have liquefied stools. They didn't have the swelling and the gut. Like, there was nothing other than the fact that they had vomited up their mice. And then I looked at the rack that I moved them into, and it's it was it's cold here, uh, and I think that my my thermostat probe crapped out, so the thermostat shut off, and it was a whopping like sixty seven degrees in the room, and it was dropping down to sixty ish at night. And so then I got a new probe, hooked up the thermostat, waited two weeks, fed the subox, they both ate, they both digested, they both made perfectly fine poos but in the meantime i have antigen tests here so i did test the regurgitated mice just to be be safe but you know because i understand the disease because i science the hell out of this thing i i knew okay it may not actually be crypto it might just be the temperature and that gave me a peace of mind and it kind of dropped the anxiety and it made it so that i could make it through and make an informed decision i think one thing that people need to really do and this is where this podcast is great, is do the nerdy deep dive and learn about the biology of things beyond just your snakes. And for that matter, now on my soapbox, learn the biology of your snakes too. Um, I, I had somebody, I asked one of my students who loves snakes, where the head of all python, I was like, well, where do they come from? And he's like, I don't know, Arizona? <laughs> just like, holy hell. Natural history just, is the best care sheet. <clears throat> oh yeah, my so, God. You know, how is that person going to know anything about ball python biology? They think they freaking came from Arizona. Um, so I think that also just educating yourself beyond the paint job and, and the enclosure and just know a little bit of biology, it goes a long, long, long way. My guess would have been Florida. There you go. <laughs> well, and in that same vein, it, you know, I would say that Steve and Zach and I being very much academically immersed we you know we know the proper search strings to look these things up so that we can deep dive 
you also have it, venues to do so. Well, we, we do talk about but, that because I mean, you do too, believe it or not. Yeah, you do. It's, there are there uh, are ways there are ways to you know to get yeah, past that, paywalls that, and things like that. That but, wasn't a jab. It wasn't. No, I know. I oh, know. No, it wasn't interpreted that way. It's <laughs> it, it's it's a valid concern. You know, yes. some people hit a paywall and then they just give up, not knowing that there are ways to get around those paywalls. But you know, again, from from the educations that we've had and the way we have immersed ourselves in this culture, Zach and Steve and I know like there are some ways to search for things that net you better results than just typing in how kill crypto, you know, Google isn't always the best answer. There are some databases. So if you're trying to find information and you're struggling reach out to people who can help you, you know, Zach, myself, Steve, um, Julander, you know, all of us were happy to help you. You know, we're not going to spoon feed it all to you, but we can point you in a direction so that you're better able to find the things you're looking for. One place I very strongly recommend rather than going to Google and trying to find everything, you know, go into Google scholar because that's going to take you looking for actual scientific papers if you want to take it up a level go to pubmed you know that's literally a giant database of scientific papers now again you are probably going to hit a paywall on a lot of them but there are ways around that yeah and even even if you are apprehensive to pay because don't get me wrong i paid for plenty of papers because i wanted to really know and what what are they 30 bucks something like that uh it depends on the paper obviously but even just reading the abstract because the abstract is always free, you know, and at least that gives you an idea of if you want to pursue that paper more, you know, a lot of them were on wrinkles, weren't they? Uh, actually, 99% of the wrinkles ones are completely free because they're all <laughs> old as dirt. <laughs> so I have like 25 wrinkles papers I need to catch up on. Can Sorry, you go, yeah, go on. post the question that Jessica just threw up? Yeah, up it was bit. back a little bit. Yeah dig through all of the heckler's comments this one yes does anyone want to comment on bovine serum treatment for for symptomatic crypto infected snakes there's some info in the literature but just case reports i can talk a little bit about this um i talked to a lot of zoo vets uh, about crypto when i was doing the deep dive because a lot of colonies of some of the more endangered colubrids that are in zoos have crypto pop up in them. And so the zoo communities have to really answer that kind of key question when it comes to crypto, which is like, are we going to burn the house down? Well, we can't burn the house down because there's only 12 of these snakes left on planet earth. So what are we going to do? Um, And so they've really kind of tackled the, can we get rid of it? And I, my understanding and you know, 1030 so this isn't i'm not at my prime right now but is that the horse serum the bovine serum um strategy for dealing with crypto and reptiles doesn't really work at all uh right now the main drug or main treatment that's being tested and there was a paper that just came out on indigo snakes like within the past six months um is paramomyosin which is an antibiotic that was that the Bronx Zoo used successfully uh, to beat back a crypto infection in an in, in a um, king cobra that was imported that they ended up with. 
Uh, we use that at West Liberty. Here again, please do not interpret what I'm saying as gospel. So not like we all need to go by paramomycin. We have evidence. We're not concluding yet because the timeline isn't long enough. But we we had crypto pop in some Barons racers and in some black milk snakes. And the snakes were perfectly fine. The only reason why we knew that they had crypto was we did the tests and the tests said they had it. Like they weren't no regurgitation, no stomach swelling, no liquefied defecation. Uh, and we treated those snakes with paramomycin per the paper that the Bronx Zoo put out on. We used the same dosage as, as them. And we ran our PCRs and did all that jazz and basically had crypto in the feces. And then we didn't have crypto in the feces. But remember, that does not mean they don't have crypto. And that does not mean that Pero killed it off. That means when they we took the swabs and the poo, the spore count was so low that it didn't present itself. So I can't say that it eliminated it. That seems to be a drug that could work. But the indigo snake paper that just came out, they did the exact same thing. Um, and they basically said there was, they did not have evidence that paramycin was able to knock back crypto. So the way I interpret that is that it, you know, there are over a thousand, well over a thousand colubroid snakes. So it's, it just makes biological sense that paramycin might work better in one species mm -hmm. than it works in another. It sure. could also be that the strain of crypto that was in our baroni would was extremely lethal to corn snakes was just kind of bad to a baron tracer. And since it wasn't in its preferred environment, i.e. in the right host, when we hit our animals with paramycin, it knocked that particular haplotype or strain of um, crypto out. But if we had a baroni a strain of crypto that really does well in um, Baron's racers, the paramomycin may not have knocked it out at all. So yeah. with crypto, you know, the, the infamous cure uh, it's it, we don't know what it is yet. We just have evidence right now that paramomycin might be a drug that works on occasion. That's the way I would word that. It's something to, to look forward to in yeah. further testing and so on, but let's, uh, to kind of drive this point home about we don't know that much about crypto so the first time we isolated the cryptosporidium from our snakes uh you know i describe and study crayfish and do taxonomy so i like daddy. how this stuff works yeah and Crawl so we daddy. got we sent the, the the samples off to get sequenced and it came back as cryptosporidium spa and i was like what the hell uh and it wasn't cryptosporidium spa it was Cryptosporidium Spa 1, Cryptosporidium Spa 2, Cryptosporidium Spa 3, so and then Cryptosporidium Serpentis. Wow. So, to, like... To, to clarify here for people who are not familiar with the jargon, Spa is short for species. Yeah, it means it's <laughs> yeah. undescribed. So, yeah. yep. you know, we, we could have found three undescribed species of crypto in our freaking corn snakes. Or, yeah. you know, it may not be. So, like, that's the thing when... when with, with the it comes to the science of understanding this snake disease and all that kind of stuff, everybody needs to understand that like we are we haven't even put our foot in the water yet. Our toe yeah. tips are in the water, right. but our foot isn't immersed yet. Like that's how little is known. That's why yeah. Steve doing the research he's doing is so incredible because you know he's answering 
apply basic questions, but the word basic here is not bad. I would guess that Steve would say the same thing, you know, is seen with the serpentaviruses. You know, the yep. test can show that you have a serpentavirus, but you're going to need to do some kind of molecular level sequencing to necessarily say if it's, you know, serpentavirus from this cluster or from this cluster or from this, you know, right. And they do, if you look at the papers or if you talk with Steve Moore, they do form little familial clusters and each cluster behaves different from each other cluster. So if you just test and get NIDO, it could be bad cluster. It could be neutral cluster. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. know. I, I will say, yeah, there's one clade of virus that uh, we found in yeah, two species and um, out of over 60 positives, it might even be as hard as like 80. I've never seen a single animal with any clinical signs from that specific clade. Okay. Yeah, because I think you would mention corns and their version of it. And yep. it's yeah, like there's those, some viruses. You know, at the, yeah, the last uh, carpet fest, you had talked about it and how like it's it's there in corns, but it seems to have zero effects on them, right? Um, I'm actually not sure about that one. I don't okay. know. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, the prevalence in colubrids is, is just very, really the prevalence in, in most stuff outside of pythons is just mm -hmm. very, very low. So when you do find something, it's either like you got lucky or, you know, it's part of testing a wider colony and they happen to have, you know, something else and okay. that happened to be picked up. But yeah, th there's, there are probably at least, I don't know, half a dozen different clades at least in serpentivirus right now. And, and, uh, you know, nestled within that is a, is a cow nidovirus and, uh, you know, a couple of like fish viruses. And I think an insect, but like, there's not, it's not like this is the branch that infects snakes. It is, right. this is the branch that we're just starting to open up a little bit of understanding for, and we're finding them most frequently in Python. And uh, real quick before we keep going, uh, Scott Iper's in the group chat, and he had mentioned that ResearchGate, which is one that I yes. frequently use, ResearchGate is uh, uh, a bit of a handful if you're not um, in academics. You basically have to apply to them, and if they think that you're worthy or whatever, they'll give you access. Um, but definitely check out ResearchGate. And then Scott had also mentioned that in all the years that he's been not necessarily in academics directly he's never had a uh an author say no to him asking for a paper yeah. so yeah. If, if, if you have a paper name and copy and paste it into normal google and just put file type pdf like yep four out of five <laughs> times that you'll find that paper yeah yeah it's like yeah, naps those, these are some of the tricks but yeah you know knowledge scott scott's right if you just email the lead, you know, the, the corresponding author. And, you know, when you look up a paper, there's little notations next to all of the authors. And one of those will say corresponding author. And somewhere in there, it will also have the email address for that person. Yeah. Now, if it's like a 40 year old paper, you <laughs> might have to work a little bit harder. But, you know, just email them. You're they they that... will have a copy of their own paper and they will love to share oh, it with it's you. the paywall for the sites that are hosting it. Right. You know, like the authors they're... aren't getting any of that, right? Like, no, 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 just no. for the website. Okay. <laughs> that's, 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 no, the for the, that's for the, 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 the periodicals yes, that the are servers and stuff like that. Yeah. The, yeah. the authors want to give you their paper because they want to share that information. I mean, right. 
we as scientists don't do this just because we get our giggles writing papers that make us tear our hair out that we want to shoot ourselves after author number or reviewer number three comes in and picks everything apart. And then we have to rewrite the entire paper that we spent a year writing. You know, that's not fun for us. We, we do it because we like doing the science, but we also like sharing what we have learned. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of the doing the whole study, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, people reach out to the author. Now, granted, if the author is some powerhouse author that has a giant lab and you know is writing grant after grant after grant and is in the field all the time, you know, that's one thing. But many, many most of the time that's not the case. And I can I can attest. I like it when somebody um, I, this is what happens when I get the email of somebody asking me for a crayfish paper. I literally open the email and I'm like there's someone other than me. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, someone cool. Else wants to read about mini lobsters. Yeah. And then we send off the paper about the mini lobster. Like, you know, there are douchebags out there that will not give you the time of day. And that's where people like us get this reputation in certain circles for like pinkies out ivory tower, dickhead academics. But that's the people that are here are not those people. Um, and I, they don't ever want to be. And so, reach out and i you know i've gotten papers for people um i've had people ask me you know i'm really interested in whatever can you help me and it's it's enjoyable for me to do a search for these things now granted i'm not advertising the universe right now that i will get all your papers um but at the same time learning the tricks is is kind of important and research gate's a great one one of the things i make my students do the second they enter my lab is that all of them have to get a research gate account uh, because I'm at a little school and we don't have big, powerful libraries. So I'm in the same boat. Most of the people listening to this are in trying to get the literature. So, um, you know, it, like Steve said, the go to Google scholar, not Google, and then type in your key, key phrase, then add PDF somewhere in your search. And, um, a lot of times, not a lot, if it's a more recent article, you can get around it. What'll happen is it'll actually take you to the research gate page and then you can yeah. download it. <laughs> so another, maybe it's a dumb question again. Um, with both crypto and Serpento viruses, isn't it counterproductive to have a mass die off? Like, is that yeah. like mm-hmm. what, what, first of all, what ecological niche do does crypto even fill? Like, why does why is it even there? It's a great question. Like, what's the what's the point? It's like sand gnats. Like, I cannot fathom why sand gnats exist. Like, you're too small for anything to really eat. Like, you're just well, there to be annoying. It, it fills its own niche. It, yeah, it, it fills its own nipper. So, what's yeah. crazy about parasites? And you can go down massive rabbit holes with parasites and nerd out hard is that a parasite's ecosystem is not necessarily the ecosystem you're thinking of. So you were thinking of ecosystem maybe as like forest and then the forest floor and then the stream running through the forest. And the way a parasite looks at an ecosystem is its host is the ecosystem. Right. So basically a corn snake is an ecosystem to a cryptospore. And so, or, or an individual cryptosporidium. And so when it gets inside the snake, there's different, community ecological communities in the snake there's the snake's lungs there's the snake's bladder there's the snake's you know liver and the gastrointestinal tract so there's um complete 
niche partitioning of the actual snake's body when it comes to the crypto. And so with parasites, you're absolutely right. The goal is not to burn your house down. The, the goal, though, is to reside in this organism and take enough of its energy that you can survive, but not so much energy that you're going to kill it. Uh, and so they have, that's why asymptomatic carrying in cryptosporidium is probably what the organism wants. They're going to get, when they get to the point where like the snake is spray painting all over the forest, that's like, oh crap, we got to like bail out of the ship. The snake's going down. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when you kind of look at parasites uh, it, it, in, from a biological lens, you know, snakes can live with them if they reach a homeostatic state because they're living with them all the time. Like if, if you right. actually do a necropsy of a dead snake on like it from the wild and you look in all the different or there's freaking parasites mm -hmm. everywhere. They're infested. Um, Lungs, and, liver, yeah. Yeah. kidney, Brains, everything. Kidneys. Uh, but all those parasites have reached an equilibrium, just like organisms reach an equilibrium when they're out in an ecological community. Um, it's when, and, and so it's kind of a really weird um, thing to think about, but that's what's going on. So when you bring a snake into human care, that's not natural. And so we are putting our perceived idea of what constitutes the environment that this thing needs to live in. And there's things going on that we don't think about uh, that could then trigger these, you know, the snake's immune system to start to tank. And then you see the expression of the, the pathology and all as well. Like one thing that, that I am coming to a realization here in Northern West Virginia that I didn't really think about until this year um, is when the heaters kick on up here in the great white North, our humidity just plummets. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, when you go from a very humid environment to no humidity in a matter of two weeks, that is going to cause physiological stress. Uh, and, and so these animals that evolved like in South Carolina, where you have relative humidity all year long, Absolutely. you bring those Okatee corns up here. And now some of them aren't going to get stressed. Some of them get stressed to hell and back. And then we end up getting the crypto popping. I don't know if humidity is what's doing it, but. Thinking about your collection that way is what could kind of help you get out ahead of the, these potential outbreaks. So next year, I'm going to try to do something. Not that I had a crypto outbreak, because I did. Uh, but I just want to make the ease as easy as possible. Sure. I'm actually going to be focusing a lot more on my humidity, because I got Govies, and I was actually able to see. Those things are fun, man. Oh, my God. Nerd time. Yeah. <laughs> You never get so excited to, to uh, refresh a little uh -huh. graph and see what things are looking like over a night. Yeah, but just day. in a 24-hour period of time, my mm -hmm. humidity is going from 80% to 10%. That does not happen normally in nature. Yeah. So And you know, and that's a good you know, that that plays into the, you know, the pythons and the viral aspects as well is, you know, think about how you mm -hmm. as a person feel when your heater in your house starts kicking on, you know, dries out your sinuses you're waking up every morning and your throat is sore because you're getting all dried out and stuff you know so you hear your snakes wheezing in those first couple of weeks that your heater is kicking on maybe your snake isn't wheezing because it's actually sick maybe your snake is wheezing for the same reason that you're waking up with a dry throat mm -hmm. every morning because your house is just all dried up and you're drying them up so you know if that's stressing you out Obviously, that's stressing your snake out too. 
Yeah. Get on top of that shit. Don't just be like, eh, it's winter. They have the Louises every winter. You know? Yeah. How many people, you know, they get a nose. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. How many people get a nosebleed every time they go in their basement in December? It's like, Mm -hmm. well, you ever wonder why? That's why. It's not just it's not just in my basement. Like every every year at you know, late winter and every year at early spring, you know, basically the transition, I pretty much get a nosebleed every single day it just (laughs) my sinuses get all messed up and just and i've had that happening you know for decades it's just the way i am yeah to kind of build off of that as it relates to to spread virus in terms of balancing with the host i think that is what we see in the majority of cases which is why we see the majority being you know asymptomatic positives uh oftentimes unless you're hunting after a sick snake but um that's kind of in my mind why I'm a little bit more fearful of like a chronically sick snake in a colony. You know, if you have a colony of 100 of the same species and you have all of them in the same conditions and one of them is sitting there with illness, yeah. in my mind, where I've placed that animal is, I, I don't know exactly the equation that resulted in that animal being sick, but somewhere in that requ- equation is um the parameters i have in my colony and whatever virus this snake has so mm-hmm. clearly there are circumstances where that virus can be uh potentially pathogenic um and so i will you're Lost still your there bar twice if you're in milwaukee it's like a bad godzilla for a second there oh he froze <clears throat> Ooh. Oh no, God, we lost him. <laughs> I think he's still there. He's, he's just, still moving, but we, yeah. we lost his his yeah. his mic. Is there any possibility maybe more so between in the viruses rather than, than crypto that there's a potential for like total sort of not necessarily immunity, but to where the hobby as a whole, like things have it, but it's not killing things off. No, no. I mean, yes and no. Um, I'm on team no. Uh, well, Travis knows and, more than me. <laughs> and well, generally, I do agree. You know, they the ultimate goal of any virus of any parasite is to reach, like you know, Zach was like saying, a, that homeostasis, that equilibrium where yeah. you're not torching everything down now the flip side of that is there's this constant you know evolutionary arms race basically where the virus is changing the host is changing the virus is changing the host is changing the viruses so right right you can you can get there eventually but you're talking sort of not fully geologic time, but a lot of geologic time. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at us as a human species, so, you know, we have all most likely been exposed to um, mono. Mm-hmm. You know, that's CMV, cytomegalovirus. In almost all cases, it's very benign, and a lot of people get it never show any symptomology. They carry the virus for the rest of their life and it does nothing. But even then, 
there are some people where it causes a huge problem. You get people who have just chronic mono. It comes back every year, every two years, every three years. The virus reactivates in the most horrible way in some people and becomes cancerous. So, but is that taking advantage of a compromised immune system? Like that's just a byproduct of, of someone. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay. Um, but again, so ultimately, yeah, that virus has hit, you know, on a broad scale, we would say it has hit sort of an, an equilibrium with us where it is benign, but in an absolute sense, it's not completely benign because there are still some people who will always have some level of susceptibility, Mm -hmm. you know, and in some respects, I think we can kind of see that with these NIDOs. Like, you know, we have that, those ones that Steve has seen where, you know, he said he's got all of the ones that he's found and they've never seen a case where it has caused active infection. Now, that doesn't mean that that clade will never, ever cause an active infection. Tomorrow, Steve may find the one animal that gets sick from that a virus in that clade. Or Steve may find another 7,000 cases. And 30 years from now, the one that causes an infection in that clade will pop up. So you can over a certain amount of time reach this equilibrium but it doesn't it's not a short-term thing right it's not a short-term thing and if you try to make it a short-term thing usually what you see is like is the mass die-offs you know Mm -hmm. if you're just exposing everything and searching for those you know one or two animals that aren't going to be infected and then their offspring that also aren't going to suffer you know you're gonna burn through animals like this and i really don't advocate for Let's just burn the house down by getting everything infected and force evolution. You know, it's not a good, safe way to do it. Steve, my, my question before you dropped out was, uh, is there ever the possibility of, of Serpentovirus, be it in a single species or sort of across the board, ever just becoming to a point where it's just, it doesn't wipe out anything. It's, it's everyone's got it, but it doesn't do anything. It's just completely benign. It's just there. Can you hear us, Steve? Oh, sorry. I'm uh, I'm like my audio <laughs> seems to be cutting out. I'm only hearing about every other word. I asked. Uh, I don't know how to do it without it doing it again. Um, basically, like in in Serpentovirus, be it a single species or like across the board, I asked if there was ever a point where it would just exist within, you know, the the population being the hobby, where everyone's got it, but it's not killing anything. It's just there. It just exists. It's Sorry, I, I, yeah, I like can't hear anything you're saying, but I can potentially jump back into where, where I was uh, before I got booted off in terms of, okay. uh, you know, those kind of slow burn snakes in a colony. Um, you know, when, when you have this animal where there are circumstances where disease can be present uh, and that animal is just sitting there with that disease, um, you know, if it, if it is sitting there mutating virus at 10 times the the viral load that equates to 10 times the mutation which uh really could present a, a laboratory to come up with something a little bit more virulent so so that is where i get a bit more paranoid about uh the animals that actually develop clinical signs in an otherwise healthy colony and that don't get better uh but maybe not you know progress towards in and of itself a, a fatal illness 
um, yeah, it's, it's just that sitting there being sick is uh, not good. And then Bruce, uh, what is that, Schilling Law? Schilling Low, Schilling Law. Uh, he said, what effect would bioactive or more natural housing have on these diseases versus more traditional methods of keeping? Do you want to go with viruses first? Well, I mean, I, I already think I know your answer, <laughs> Zach, is it gives it gives the spores a lot more places to hide and makes it harder to clean. So <laughs> just giving them a mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, I still don't think it. So you're getting into welfare now, that dirty W word. Ugh. But it's an important word that I don't think should be all that dirty in herpetoculture anymore. Um because if you're keeping your snakes completely sterile because you think they have a disease, you could, in theory, possibly be inducing stress because they don't have the security that they might get from a more naturalistic setup. And I'm not talking about all snakes, but at the same time, every snake that has been studied so far, when you give it more options in an enclosure, it seems to do better. So if we're saying that homeos, you know, a non-stressed snake is not going to display disease pathology, then we're kind of getting into this weird way of thinking where if we provide them more options and they have, they feel secure, then they're not going to be stressed. Their corticosterone levels are going to be low. And if they're not stressed, then if they do get one of these diseases, it might help keep the disease at bay because they're feeling secure and, you know, content, I guess, would be the word that we're looking for. Yeah. If you are keeping the snake in a sterile environment, sure, you're going to be able to get the spores and clean all that kind of jazz. But if the animal's permanently stressed, you're also yeah, creating a stressed right. em an environment for the pathogen to just basically go hog wild. So there right. is, I, I hear a lot of people kind of talk down on naturalistic keeping and bioactive and all that kind of stuff when it comes to the management of diseases. And there's definitely a, an aspect that that complicates things. I'm not saying that, but uh, you got to understand that like maybe it, because the snakes or lizards, whatever it might be are more content uh, and that's going to keep the disease at bay. Now the extreme opposite end of this is that, well, you know, Loafman just said then that bioactive creates the best situation on earth and therefore it's the best way to go because there's there's people on the extreme end of that continuum as well. And I'm not saying that because there are certain situations where, once again, we anthropomorphize and we basically create an environment that we think the snake really wants. And in reality, um, it may not be what it wants at all. Uh, I've got snakes right now in racks behind me that I've tried to keep in a naturalistic setup. They will not eat. They, you know, they get stressed to hell and back. I put them in the rack, give them two inches of substrate and happy as larks or content, whatever the right mm -hmm. word is. And then they start putting on weight and everything's good. So like, I'm not saying bioactive is the way per se. What I'm saying is giving the snakes choices and giving them the ability to go where they want to be. And, 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 you know, that's what, what, what could be beneficial. And that's what naturalistic keeping, um, that's the goal of it. So that's kind of a, a more complicated issue than one might think, in my opinion. I think you, you summarized it exquisitely. Honestly. My, uh, 
audio seems to be working fine. So let me know if there's any questions that I'd missed in that. So you want to go back and try the one that I was talking about before? Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. So, yeah okay, so definitely got to recap that. I had asked, and Wyman sort of touched on a little bit, but as far as serpentovirus, be it in a single species or sort of across the board, is there ever going to be a point where there's sort of quote-unquote herd immunity and it's in collections but no one's having any issues with it? Or is it just so diverse and so large and constantly evolving that it'll never be able to fully be pinned down? Yeah, it's just too big. Yeah. Yeah. For the same reason, I wouldn't set expectations of a vaccine or anything like that. It's just, there's just, you know, we're okay. talking People about it like it's, about that it's, too. Yeah. We're talking about it like it's one thing, but we're talking about, you know, conservatively 50 viruses when we're, yeah. You know, well, and is that a growing number too? Is that, oh, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. That, I mean, it's, think of it like, in some respects, think of it like flu, you know. There are a bunch of different flu and flu types. And, you know, every year we're having to get vaccinated against the flu. And those vaccines are not 100% effective when we get the flu vaccines. And, you know, that's a virus that impacts us. So it kind of matters that we get vaccinated against it and that there's a vaccine against it. In the big picture here, there isn't the funding or the yeah, interest right. by the world at yeah. large to invest in right. a vaccine for these snakes. I mean, we we as reptile keepers like to think that snakes are really important. And to us, they are. But to the world in general, they nobody cares. Nobody right. is going to waste time, money, resources into making a vaccine for snakes it's yeah, just so not going to happen it's not a health crisis yeah forget right. the, it's, forget it's the vaccine yeah it's not it's it, forget the it, vaccine yeah. it's you know yeah. like, I, studying them in general jeez right i, I hate to sound like i'm <laughs> shitting on the hobby but in some respects i kind of am like you know we have all of these auctions for us arc and i don't get me wrong us arc does great things for us and people need to fund us arc better but you know like people dump stupid money into that you know like five thousand dollars for a pencil and yeah it's great that we're donating yeah. but then like when we have fundraisers for nido it's like pulling teeth yeah you know and you know but then the hullabaloo that comes up when we're talking about testing for nido it's like well if you people really care and you really wanted answers maybe you should be putting some of this same enthusiasm into donating to the auctions for NIDO that you put into donating for the auctions to US ARC because that money can then be used to better study these things, to better understand them, and then we're a lot less likely to have these, you know, flash in a pan panic attacks that we saw last week or that we see when somebody comes out because their entire collection melts down. Yeah. And like I said, I know it sounds like I'm kind of shitting on the hobby. And in some respects, I kind of am. But, you know, don't sit here and say, well, we'll just develop a vaccine because that that's that's so no, I, far I, yeah, from possible. Yeah, right I think now. it was just it was just an idea that someone may have had. But and, and I don't think you're shitting on the hobby. at I all. I know people I think, have asked before. Yeah, I don't think you're shitting on the hobby at all. I, I think that you're saying something that the majority of us in, in this at least our collective circle have thought of and have have expressed to themselves and needs to be spoken up more about you know I mean, it's it's an unpopular opinion and sure i you know 
sometimes opinion I just based cut straight, in reality. Sometimes I just cut straight to the point and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's just no, what it, it's like it's I said. Great. I'm not I'm not trashing US ARC. I am not trashing the US ARC auctions. I just I find it bothersome sometimes that as much as people say they care about this industry, there are places where it's important and they just kind of let it, they act like it's not. And that is very frustrating to me. And this would be one of those, you know, if people donated more and contributed more, we could do more research into these things and not just for serpentovirus, you know, for adeno, for arena viruses, for paramyxoviruses, for crypto, we could for we could get all more information ones. out there for everybody. Yeah, there's ones we don't know about. Like regularly, we get weird cases in the diagnostic lab, and it's not any of the common things. And then we'll sequence it, uh, you know, anything in that sample, and come up with some weird virus that we've never seen or yeah. bacteria. You know, there, there's there's uh herb medicine is is very much a fluid thing that is ever improving i guess well it also doesn't seem to be exactly on the cutting edge compared to you know that's correct other yep. commonly household kept pets you know it's sure well it's still it's still an up-and-coming pet for lack of a better word yeah you know what I mean? It, we have we have more people in herpetoculture and herpetofauna than the history of humanity and it's going to take time for medicine and science in the captive world to catch up, you know? So, yeah. I, I also think that there's, sorry to cut, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry, but no, there's, there's also a stigma that comes from multiple generations of herpers back where it's the vet doesn't know anything. I know my animal. Eh, I'll just do X, Y, and Z. Or, oh, there's nothing you can do. Or the, my favorite quote that people have heard me say many times is, "Oh, those things die great. You know, they die, they die really well." So there are people of all different generations that still hold on to, myself included, an attitude like that. And now is the time that we're seeing all this stuff with all these diseases and illnesses and and the ability to have the knowledge and the literally the palm of our hand, the progress, we just need to keep the progress going and not fall back into those old ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. I, I, there's many challenges in, in conversations regarding this because, you know, you can have intellectual conversations about pathogens themselves and how they deal with hosts and stuff, but, but where it really gets tricky is how to, convert that into policy that that people within the industry can actually operate by and that's you know fair to everyone mm -hmm. i mean yeah and i guess bringing this back to the beginning in terms of of what morph market suggested in terms of dealing with serpentaviruses or, or nidoviruses I, I think how i would do it is i know if i test a snake here it'll test negative whether or not it's positive it's going to test negative because it's 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 very happy it's a very happy snake and I am very aware of the strains that I see in my colony. And I know that the strain I have, I can't detect unless there's a reason to detect it. Mm -hmm. So from a seller's point of view, it, it makes way more sense to, to test on the, the buyer's end after that animal has the stress of shipping and, you know, where you could have that little, it's going to give yeah. you your best chance at a positive uh, sample. So, you know, in terms of dealing with the real world, I would say a, a 
negative test on or shortly after arrival is pretty much all a any seller can reasonably guarantee. Well, I guess that kind of ties into the issue that we saw recently with carpets and, uh, you know, the whole thing fiasco with like star pythons and tests a year later coming back positive, you know, then it, like at what point is it, you know, if someone just tests and the first test comes back negative and then they test again a month later, two months later, three months later, and that goes back positive. How did, I mean, how do we know that that didn't initially come from that seller? Yeah, well, that goes to well, like what Travis was saying the other day about sneakers, right? Was that was that yesterday we were talking about sneakers? You know, you you buy a pair of sneakers and you take them home and you try them on, and hey, they don't they don't fit my feet right. I don't like them, and you take them back the next day, and the store gives you a credit or a refund or whatever. But if you wear those sneakers for six to nine months and they're worn out and they're dirty and they're tattered, and you say, hey, these don't fit my feet right. I wore them for six months, but they're 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 not right for me. The store's not going to take them back, and the store's not going to want to deal with it because you already "quote unquote" used it. So I'm I just see... talking about the, from the standpoint of like the origins of it, right? And that's what I'm getting well, at. Yeah. Is that it's is that... With... the same uh, thing? Like you could have, yeah. you could have, you know, this Nido that's sitting silently in your collection. But what I was and saying is, is that it could have you're... come from something else, right? It, yeah. it or it could have come, come from, from the collection in the first place. There's right. no, it could be in your collection in the first so place. High. And when you tested the snake in the, you know, when you first got it and it was negative, it was legitimately negative. But then, you know, six months in, as you're getting ready for breeding season and you start pairing up your animals, and now this animal gets a little bit of a wheeze to it. And like I said, is it the wheeze because it's actually sick? Or is it the wheeze because your heaters have kicked on and all mm -hmm. of your animals are getting yeah. dried out and their lungs are getting a little scrapey, so it's wheezing? And you test because you see this symptomology, and now it tests hot. Well, is it testing hot because you've got the Nido floating through your collection? It's a benign one in your collection. Your animal in question was clean when it came in, but it got it because the rest of your collection has been circulating it and what you're calling the symptomology isn't really the symptomology the same way you know zach had the subox yak up yep. and first thought oh god crypto but then he stopped and went well no wait maybe not crypto you know so you have to take it all into effect and you know i said that's that's kind of what i think john was trying to get at a bit with this the policy that he did was you know saying that you have to let people know if you get a sick snake in four hours doesn't work necessarily with the testing, mm -hmm. but he still put a limit on, you know, you, if you're going to test, it has to be within two hours of receipt and you have to do video or photographic evidence of that within two hours of receipt mm -hmm. because John was well aware of, you know, I, at, we at morph market don't want to say six months later, 10 months later, I tested this animal, it was positive. But if you as a buyer want to test the animal as soon as it gets in, you should have that right. The same way if you buy a cat or a dog, you should have that right to take the dog yeah. or cat in for a wellness visit really quick off. And, you know, I think people just both, I think both sides lost sight of really what John was trying to get at, which in my heart, I think was a very legitimate and, Mm -hmm. you know, legitimizing way to make the hobby go. But you had one half of the hobby that was like, you know, 
you're telling me I have to test and that's not cool. And if I say I'm not going to test my animals, now you're going to say that I'm uncaring and I'm money hungry. And the other side saying, you can't tell me that, you know, I can't test because you're a big breeder and you don't believe in this stuff and that I'm just paranoid and, you know, I'm out to destroy all the breeder. You know, it's not, you know, if I want to test an animal, I'm going to test an animal. Right. I don't care if the breeder tells me I can test the animal or not. Now, if I test an animal because I chose to and it comes hot and I talk to the breeder, I hope the breeder's going to make it right. The same way if I buy a dog and I go and take a wellness vet, you know, visit and it comes back sick, the breeder's going to make it right then. Now, does the breeder have to? No, but the dog breeder doesn't have to either. If the breeder doesn't, should I blast them publicly here, there, and everywhere? No, I shouldn't. You know, am I going to be upset if they don't make it right? Yeah, I am. Am I probably never going to buy from them again? Very probably not. But, you know, again, this hobby has a tendency where something goes wrong. And then the next thing we do is just broadcast to hell and gone about how horrible somebody is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I think both sides lost sight and spent too much time nitpicking at each other than to realize Overall, what was asked wasn't terribly unreasonable. Yeah. And ultimately, it would have been legitimizing. And, you know, again, this is me personally. I'm not talking for John. You know, again, at the same time, I think that the conversation is out there now. And I think people will have to consider it more. And I hope that, you know, at least discussing what we've been discussing here, talking about, you know, these things are prevalent. These things are probably common. There's probably a time and a place to test. There's probably a time and a place to panic, but it's not every single time and it's not all of the time. And I'm hoping that both sides will be able to step back from the edge a little bit and kind of focus on, you know, working to make this right for everybody. Yeah. And, and that's still- my hope. And like I said, it may be a pipe dream, but yeah, rationality is yeah. what I'm looking for. Yeah. I mean, the way I see it, the solution seems extremely easy. It's either you buy from people that test, or you just <laughs> you don't buy a ton of animals. Or you just you make the decisions as you need to make them. Right. You know? like if you're shopping for animals and you come across someone and they say they just don't test, if you don't like that, then don't buy from them. Exactly. Right. Or again, you know, this is you can <laughs> mitigate risk by, you know, an animal that you yank out of an egg and then stick in your collection is probably a safer bet than buying a five-year proven mm-hmm. whatever from some breeder. You know, not an- all animals are necessarily representing the, the same amount of risk either. Right. True. You know, well, and especially there's a difference animal. between buying that one five-year an- breeder animal and buying 15 or 50 snakes because somebody's decided they're getting out of the business. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you, you have to weigh the risks of what it is you're doing. And that's, that's sort of been my, my stance with all of it, you know, with my collection is like, just be smart, like pay attention to possible cross-contamination, pay attention to, you know, how things are being worked. Like just be aware of it, be aware of what you're doing, be aware of where you're putting things, be aware of disinfecting, like be aware of just, you know, just pay attention. I think it also comes down to, we talk about how this is an industry, this is a trade, this is a hobby. 
when we all know this is also a community. And I think a lot of times it's a community ab- above everything else. And I don't know about you guys, but yeah, have I bought animals from breeders that I didn't know personally? Of course, most of us have. But if I have the opportunity or I see a window where I can maybe communicate with them and try and be friendly and get to know them and make it personable, then I'm going to do that as well because I want to know how they took care of the animals, how their breeding is, uh, lineage, all that stuff. So going back to what Justin was saying is if the person doesn't want to test or you don't like their practices, no, you don't have to buy from them. But at the same time, ask them, talk to them, get their mm-hmm. opinion. You know what I mean? And if they're a total jerk and want to shut you out, well then, oh, well, yeah. there's you know, there's plenty of fish in the sea. So there's there's very few scenarios where you won't be able to find that same right. morph or animal, right. you know, like. It's not the last one on the planet. That's what I tell myself all the time to talk myself out of buying things. It's like, that's not the last one yeah. to exist. You know? so. And I mean, that engagement thing, I think is important. You know, I, yeah. so, I mean, I hatched those kukris this year and, mm-hmm. you know, when I put them up, I got a lot of interest in them. And I had one guy who, you know, he just blew me up with questions. And every single time he asked me a question, he always apologized for asking the question. And every single time I told him, I was like, you know, stop apologizing. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, like, I really, I much prefer that you ask these questions because if you're asking these questions, I know that you're actually caring about, you know, picking up these animals and what it means to take care of them. Yeah. You're doing the research. You're getting yourself ready and prepared to really take care of these animals. You're not just like, Ooh, pretty snake. I want it, you know? Now, at the same time, I did have one guy who literally said, give me your PayPal now. I want. And, you know, I I, I gave him everything that he wanted to. But, you know, afterwards, I found out that he'd already worked with Kukri's and he was looking for new bloodlines. And that's why he wanted my animals. But he came back to talk to me later. He just he was afraid they were going to disappear. So that's why he was just like PayPal now. Yeah, But this other guy who, like, we went back and forth for like four days asking me questions so that he could be, you know, comfortable buying these animals and knowing that he was going into it with animals that he knew he could care for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really, I, I'm happy that he did that. And I was glad to answer his questions. Yeah. I think a lot of us in the in our group of friends, as well as friends of friends and clicks of clicks, right? there's there's always one or two individuals that are just like us who are sick and tired of nonsense especially when selling offspring and what happens is i don't want to say they're jaded or ruined or whatever but you know you 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 get these messages that says you know do you have gecko for sale okay well are they not for the United- well not even that do you have gecko for sale and it's like okay are they just bad at typing are they not you know, American do the, is the English not their first language or do I just assume they they're an idiot? Are they, are they a minor? Right. Or do I just assume that they're an idiot and I treat them as such? No, I do a little digging. I'll look at their page, whatever, you know? And then I get, a, I get another guy who I, I don't, I don't sell anything. I really don't, I don't breed anything. I really don't have anything for sale, but I get a guy who messaged me on Facebook. I have no idea who this gentleman is, but he messaged me. He says, Hey, somebody told me that you work with Cordillidae. I have tropid sternum. Would you be, you know, able to look at a couple of pictures of their bellies and tell me if my gender ratio is correct or not. Him and I talked just like, you know, Travis was saying for like four days, sending crotch pictures of lizards back and forth. <laughs> so like, 
And it, I could have said, hey, man, go out and buy, you know, Jan's Riesing's book and flip to page 412 and look at the pictures. But no, we talk and we socialize because it's a part of this community, you know, and, and people also will totally understand if at that moment in time you don't feel like talking and say, hey, I'm swamped. I'll message you tomorrow or whatever. And if they don't message you, you can't get mad. It's life, you know. So I think the the perception we of how we nothing. right well no it's the perception is how we deal with things in our community we can be pissed off at the nonsense or we can overlook the nonsense and focus on you know the 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 Chris Panshaw glass always full you know so he's a freak he's beautiful <laughs> I love him to death but I don't know I, I I'm not like a negative person. But I'm not nearly as positive as Chris. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sometimes I think he's just on some sort of stimulant or drug. <clears throat> but Steve, you you were gonna say something before we got into the whole buyer seller combo. You I feel like you were gonna chime in and we we stampeded you on accident. Oh, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Okay. Oh. You'll you'll remember it two in the morning and text us. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was and talking to Jessica. A couple of days ago, you know, through messages and stuff, she had dealt with arena virus. I'm I'm very unfamiliar with that. Is there it's any IBD? Yeah, IBD. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So IBD is reptorina virus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody knows it as IBD. They don't typically associate it with its more its more scientifically known name. Gotcha. So what should be people's sort of best practices, like your top three, this is how you can make your life a lot easier and avoid heart heartbreak. <laughs> For crypto, I think it depends on the number of snakes you have. So if you know going into this that you don't aspire to have a giant collect, more than 20, and you're just really, really selective, I don't think it's beyond anybody's I, I, I think it's a totally fine request if you're especially if you're buying the snakes online or you're reaching out to people to ask before you buy the snake hey what happens if I get a positive crypto test and just ask the question um, point blank and deal with it uh, and, and if you do that then I think that at that number of animals it is possible if you're vigilant and you practice good quarantine and you know what the symptoms are and you test yourself and blah, 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 that you can potentially not have crypto in your collection. If you have a if you have a collection of colubrids and it's over 50 snakes and they're coming in, you know, from all over the country or you're a large breeder, it's just based off every bit of evidence I have to date. It is disingenuous for you to think that you are crypto free. So you, should act like you have it. And I don't think it's outside the realm of, of good practice to basically have your collection tested during those stressful times a year, like what Steven was saying. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you stress when, or sorry, if you test in the middle of the summer when everything's hunky dory, you're, you're not going to get a positive. But if you stress, if you test when the animals are stressed, that's hard to say. Coming out of brumation, going into brumation, you're going to, you're going to have a bigger bang for your buck. And I think it is within the realm of possibility for people to test entire collections and then have the crypto ward situation. You know, 
where you just basically move the animals off site and then it's up to you as a the maintainer of that collection to figure out what you're going to do with those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think is best practice. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing at the university. So like as an, as an example, I knew we were putting things down for brumation. I knew that the furnaces were coming on, which is like the great stressor of Arnett Hall where all the snakes are at West Liberty. And so um, one of my co-professors at West Lib that does the zoo size stuff with me, we tested the entire collection for crypto. We had crypto there before. We had animals that were stressed. I was totally expecting to get positives. And we sent off 80 crypto tests and nothing came back positive. And my response to that as a scientist was not, yes, it was bullshit. (laughs) Literally, like, no, sorry, don't believe it. So we're, we're, we're cautiously optimistic, but I'm not in any way, shape, or form convinced. So when everybody comes out in the spring, we have a large collection of snakes. I've got little undergrads feeding these things they have no they're learning sterile techniques so we're going to test everybody again and it was it pricey yeah um and we're not making any money off of our collection our collection's purpose is to teach but if you're making money off these things i think it's just a good practice to do this and then if you get a crypto positive snake don't like that snake goes away doesn't necessarily get bred um you want to interact with it as, as little as possible and then that just becomes the standard practice that that's Based off everything I've read, everything we've done, dealing with crypto, the way we've dealt with it, that would be what I would do. And I'm testing my animals here as well because I just I, I have to. Yeah, I don't. I'd rather test before I even sent one out because I mean, you think about mm-hmm. that, like you're looking well, at the cost of shipping and then toss the shipping it back. The, the on top problem of the test. getting what then what Steve said is if you test before you ship, oh right, they're not stressed. If yeah. you test after they ship they're stressed yeah um that's when you're going to get the positive in an asymptomatic carrier in my opinion or your probability of getting a positive is higher in an asymptomatic carrier post shipment -shipment. yeah yes yeah i would say if i were to distill down my advice to, to three main points yeah it would just be you know first of all don't panic these viruses are out there um oftentimes they don't seem to matter except for when they do um, but you know, maybe wait for your panic until you actually do have a reason to, to think about those viruses really mattering. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, prioritizing biosecurity about stuff coming in, have a really good quarantine. Um, and yeah, I think buyer and seller conversations need to happen about what the expectations of a healthy animal are. Um, but if I were to design a policy that would be fair to buyer and seller it would look an awful lot like what uh more market had drafted up so well put yeah and i'm i mean it's hard for me to add anything really to what either zach or steve had said you know testing when and where it's appropriate but you kind of decide what when and where is appropriate for you based on your collection um quarantine 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 and i will nitpick here slightly three days is not a quarantine three weeks is not a quarantine i'm sorry you know i don't care how important that male 
17 gene animal is to get to your female that you just decided to pick up last month, that's, that's really not a good quarantine. And, you know, you know, I go extreme with my quarantines, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm also bringing in some wild caught animals for some of the things that I do and working on establishing them. So, you know, I have had animals in quarantine for a year. Again, that might be a little bit extreme for, you know, something that's captive born and bred, but I don't think that 60 to 90 days is unreasonable, even with a captive bred animal, because you just don't know sometimes. Yeah. Watch your animals, know your animals. Don't automatically assume that everything equals worst case scenario. Sometimes a regurge is just a regurge. Sometimes a sniffle is just because it's that time of year where the heaters are drying everybody out. So use some common sense and don't always jump to the worst case scenario. Well put. I, uh, I'll ask the question that this is a, I'll ask a question no one wants to ask. This is completely an opinion of you gentlemen, Justin included, myself included. I want to know you guys' opinions. You have something that comes up positive. Things get isolated. Things get, precautions get taken. Do you euthanize the animal or not? Let me go. Whoever, yeah, yeah, we'll start with Zach. So, um, if it is, I'm going to talk to, for crypto. Sure. If it is actively showing pathology, so we've got liquefied diarrhea, bloated stomach. Yeah, it's past the point of no return. Of no return, it's being euthanized. Yeah. Um, If it comes back as asymptomatic, I'm not euthanizing it at that point. I'm going to ward it. I'm going to do the whole process I've talked about now, move it off. Sure. And then I'm going to really think about the ultimate. Why is that animal in the collection? Now, can I afford to have a, a positive animal here? What's the likelihood of it spreading? What's my fly count? <laughs> like, yeah, there's literally it is not just a quick knee jerk. Burn it with fire. Sure. Kill it with fire. No, I'm really going to kind of think that thing through. And I've done this. Um, for instance, right now in my closet in my bedroom. There is a uh, Boruna maculata, a Musarana, that has popped positive for crypto three or four times. Uh, we've hit it with para- I've done the paramomycin. The snake is completely asymptomatic. Um, I caught it just doing this kind of screening, and uh, it's okay. I have a male Boruna at West Liberty that may be crypto positive. And also asymptomatic. So yeah. in this scenario, the snakes are fine, but they are potential vectors of disease for my collection. But I can, I'm thinking I can breed those two together because they both have crypto. Yeah. And we did studies at West Liberty that showed that crypto positive females lay eggs. They don't like the spores are, have the potential to end up on the egg, but we didn't find any evidence of that. And that's a species that's not that, I mean, it's, it's not super rare, but it's not overly common. Right. Uh, and it's really hard to find adults. So like, it's a complicated decision-making process. It does not sure. involve 
kerosene in a match. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. that's that that's I, an example of what I would do. It, yeah, in terms of the serpentoviruses, I would say it, it it is very much context dependent. And I can tell, you know, a couple of stories of a couple of different viruses that all had very different outcomes in terms of how I dealt with them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I have some snakes that I know are positive, like I have a reticulated python and some Kenyan samboas that um, are positive for a virus that I'm not scared of at all. I don't, I, I've had these animals for six, seven years and the strain that they have, they haven't passed it along to, to any other animal in the colony, despite, you know, being in the colony before the first serpentivirus was even public. So there are plenty of circumstances where, you know, a positive does not, you know, is not a, a means of, not automatic uh, death. But, you know, I have uh, another snake that was a wild caught popwin python and that one came in as an asymptomatic positive uh but then i isolated its virus and culture and it was it was a badass virus like it it, <laughs> it knocked out stuff at a level that i had not seen up till that point so that was a snake that i opted to euthanize because i when i see a virus do something in culture that i hadn't seen that's that's scary enough so yeah um and it's awesome have, that you have the ability to do that yeah right um, <laughs> you know <laughs> But then I have a group of, of green tree pythons. I've been trying to, to build a, a you know smallish green tree python colony, and, and man, it is really really hard to find a negative green tree python unless it's a neonate. Um, and so you know I have I have a, a whole room of you know virus positive retic uh, virus positive uh, green tree pythons that you know I'm not particularly worried about the virus these guys have because they seem to be fine with it. But I also have a whole other room of negative stuff that I put a lot of work into making negative. So, yeah. you know, that's one where, where I don't feel the need to, to euthanize those animals because I have some place to put them. But if I didn't, that's where it gets a little bit more tricky. And that's where, you know, does this need to go out as a pet to someone who literally just wants one pet snake? Sure. Does this, you know, need to live in a display cage in my living room? Like there, there's, there's a, a thousand and a half options of managing it depending on, you know, what level of risk you're willing to take and, and how much yeah. of a risk you view a particular virus and being. So, you know. Excellent. Excellent. Trav? And I mean, I'm basically in the same boat. Um, I have been lucky in that I haven't had any animals pop positive, but, you know, I also haven't tested my entire collection. I've, you know, if I have seen something that has made me concerned, I've checked. But, you know, I've also gone kind of the, the way Zach said, you know, first eliminate any other option before you go straight to the worst case scenario. And right. the tests that I have run have been more, I've eliminated all of the other possibilities, but at the same time, this doesn't really look like a true fire burning infection. So let's just make sure and those animals came back negative. Um, so I do consider myself lucky in that regard. I don't have a giant collection, so maybe that's, you know, part of how I have gotten away with it. Maybe part of it's also because of my just insanity with my quarantining techniques is I keep my stuff really, really separated to make sure until I really, really am comfortable. But if I did have something hit hot, it would be a matter of, you know, of a case-by-case -case basis. Did it hit hot because it was sitting there hacking up mucus and blowing bubbles? And that's when I tested it. And it looks like this 
is a really ugly thing and it yeah. needs to then be eliminated out of the collection or did it have a sniffle because it was under stress time of year you know i was pairing animals up and it started getting a little bit of weirdness i tested it it was hot you know i would probably isolate that animal i would see how it develops i would you know if it had been paired with another animal i would test that animal too yeah um I don't, you know, I'm not breeding for sales or anything. I usually just am breeding for myself and what I sell is just the byproduct. If it's animals that I can get away with going some other direction to still get the same result out of animals that I know are clean, I'll just retire them as breeders and keep them as pets isolated. Yeah. Um, if I'm still looking for a specific product that I can only get out of those animals, then I will only use animals that I know are carriers, even if they're asymptomatic carriers, their eggs, once they're laid, you know, that virus isn't going to be able to perpetuate through the entirety of the incubation. I might give a light swab on the outside of the egg with an alcohol wipe or something just to take down any burden that may be there. But after the end of that, those neos are going to come out. They'll be clean. And they'll go into the neo rack, which I know is independent and excluded from those positive parents. So I will be essentially purging in right. that regard. Excellent. Excellent. That was actually, you guys basically said everything that I personally think. I mean, Justin, do you have anything you might want to add? No, no. Yeah, I mean, very, very similar thought processes in all, in all of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think a lot of it's just being smart and paying attention to how many animals you're bringing in, who you're buying them from, you know, just using your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Is there such a thing as disinfecting too much? Yes. Yes. Like tools and stuff. Oh, tools? No. But I, I think if you try to clean your animals too much, you could yeah. actually cause problems by having overly clean animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Them more That's susceptible. Sure. Yeah, I just mean absolutely. like tools and the things you're using on a daily basis in your rooms and, and things like that. Yeah, the stuff outside of the enclosure, I don't think that you can sterilize too much. Um, yeah. There's this really cool study that the St. Louis Zoo did, and it's not published anywhere. And I wish it was because it's really interesting. Um, but they did a study where they looked at corticosterone levels in uh, snake. I think it was blood. I don't know if it was poo. I think it was blood. Um, and cortisol is the stress hormone. That's mm-hmm. when everybody's like, I'm so stressed out. What you're really saying is my corticosterone levels are peaking. So anywho, but they studied court levels in snakes that were allowed to live in rack tubs with like cypress mulch and the fecal material and everything was, was, was removed once every two weeks. And then they did it. And they had another group where they were removing the feces, literally like snake goes to the bathroom. It's removed. And they looked at the cortisol levels in those two groups of snakes. And what they found was that the Uber clean group was <laughs> massively more stressed out with the court levels than the, the group that we would look at and basically be like, that's kind of gross. 
So I'm not saying to let your snakes slither around and crack. But what I am saying is there's something to be said about spending too much time in that enclosure. That's basically what they were they were trying to get at. And they actually had an objective data set that kind of showed it. I got you. So, you know, leaving a little bit of poo in there is probably okay. Yeah, and Phil and I have talked about that too, just for the sake of, you know, some animals. Like, I noticed that with a lot of my stuff. As soon as I do a substrate change, they're dropping something. And then Phil's talked about with his cobras, how they just coat everything. Yeah. And it's, we, you know, we we firmly believe that it's... some sort of not necessarily marking their territory but a familiarity you know this is their area and that's you know that's that's how they associate whatever with the you know the tubs and stuff and i don't know that's the that's the only thing that makes sense to us at least yeah our non-scientific minds your minds are more scientific than you think Well, I mean, there's so you're doing a good job, dude. <laughs> in in the scientific circles, we call this the hygiene hypothesis, mm-hmm. um, and basically, it shows that the more clean you are, the less healthy you are because you're not exposed to these things that stimulate your immune system. Mm-hmm. So, it's good to stimulate your immune system some. And yeah, being overly clean can create a problem. You hear that, Phil? Not what I miss. <laughs> Go take a dump in your bed and sleep in it, and you'll not. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Is that the classic? Not going, not going that far. <laughs> the, the cla- I had to take my contact was driving me crazy, so I switched to glasses. Forgive me for missing the, okay. the wonderful feces talk. Is that the cl- the classic example of uh, do turtles have salmonella? Well, ma'am, oh. if you put your child in a kiddie pool of its own feces for six weeks, it will have salmonella. <laughs> yeah. There's that too, yes, but wasn't entirely what I was getting at. <laughs> right. All righty. I think we covered just about everything. I know it's it's getting late here. I don't. I think Travis is the only one where it's not. Uh, oh no, it is. We're all on the East Coast. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. all on the East Coast. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think this is great, guys. Uh, yeah, I'm glad we made this happen. No worries, yeah. it was fun. Yeah, happy to come on. Yeah. And it is it is very I don't want to say reassuring, but it's definitely a peace of mind to know that we're all in this together. We all share similar thoughts, we all share similar worries and paranoia, but there is answers, you know, to be had, and there will be more and more answers in the futures to come. And I think that's all great. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's a good take home is it shouldn't necessarily be a giant stigma that you have a collection that has some kind of pathology in it. Because when you get to a certain number of animals, you're just begging this to happen because this is literally why diseases evolve. You know, population, it's a part of population regulation. Yes. There are those who have colonies with pathogens in it, and there are those who don't know they have a colony with pathogens in it. Right. Yeah. Nailed it. There, there, there are there are those two types of people in the industry: those who know that they have a pathology, and those that are just they have it, they mm-hmm. just don't know it yet. Yeah. So we we shouldn't be, 
you shouldn't be branded as oh they got crypto in their collection it should you know if somebody's willing to say i got crypto in my collection but i haven't found it over here i'd be like that should be the standard not you know oh we found out they had crypto and then they get blasted on social media and you know all that kind of jazz yeah, yeah. Um, like, that you just was... need to kind of get some communication there. Now, granted, if you're selling snakes that you know have crypto, that's a, com- you know, that's different. Yeah, yeah. But the people that have the courage to come out and say it, I, I don't think that you should be like, oh, I'm never buying anything from them necessarily. And that was like I was trying to get at earlier. I think there's too much stigma going both ways. I think people mm-hmm. that want to test shouldn't be blasted for testing, shouldn't be called paranoid shouldn't be looked at as trying to bring breeders down by, you know, just buying snakes to find out if they're positive so they can throw names out there. At the same time, I think if somebody isn't testing every single snake, you shouldn't be blasting them either. You know, test when and where necessary. Yeah. You get to decide what, when and where necessary is for you. And nobody gets to shit on you for that. No matter what that decision is, unless like Zach said, you're knowingly sending out things that are bad, you know? Right. Steve? Yeah, just I think that relates back to any sort of, you know, buyer-seller conversation and making sure everyone has the same understanding of, of what exactly the expectation is on the animal they're buying. Yeah. Yeah, it's good Pretty points. good. All righty. Gentlemen, thank you for everything. Thank you. No worries. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Yes. This was episode 102 of Snakes and Stogies brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. And we will be back for THP on Thursday. It's going to be the last episode of the year. It's going to be me and Jake. And... I don't know if we're going to have another snake system. I mean, surely we'll have one more Actually, snake system here, but yeah, we got to yeah, figure that out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. We appreciate it. Later.